Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com In the past decade alone, January 24th, 2004, Timothy Stansberry, Brooklyn, New York, unarmed. November 25th, 2006, Sean Bell, Queens, New York, unarmed. January 1, 2009, Oscar Grant, Oakland, California, unarmed. January 29th, 2010, Aaron Campbell, Portland, Oregon, unarmed. July 18th, 2011, Alonzo Ashley, Denver, Colorado, unarmed. March 7th, 2012, Wendell Allen, New Orleans, Louisiana, unarmed. September 14th, 2013, Jonathan Farrell, Charlotte, North Carolina, unarmed. July 17th, 2014, Eric Garner, Staten Island, New York, unarmed. August 9th, 2014, Michael Brown, Ferguson, Missouri, unarmed. In the past decade alone, these men and hundreds of others have lost their lives to police. Local police report to the FBI, killing at least 400 people a year. From 2006 to 2012, a white police officer killed a black person at least twice a week in this country. Which brings us back to Ferguson, Missouri. According to a report in the Daily Beast, in 2009, police officers charged a man for property damage because he bled on their uniforms while they arrested him and allegedly beat him bloody. Ferguson, Missouri, where it took six days to release the name of an officer who shot an unarmed teenager to death. Ferguson, Missouri, where police released images of someone who might be Michael Brown involved in a store robbery, and then hours later said the robbery had nothing to do with why Michael Brown was stopped by the police officer who killed him. Ferguson is just outside St. Louis, Missouri, the place where, as historian Blair Kelly reminded us this week in The Root, Dred Scott sued for his freedom on the grounds that he and his wife had for three years, had for many years, lived in a free state. His case eventually went to the Supreme Court. And in 1857, Chief Justice Roger Taney declared that Scott had no right to sue because, as a black man, he was never intended to be an American. Speaking on the clause in the Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal, Tanny wrote, quote, It is too clear for dispute that the enslaved African race were not intended to be included and formed no part of the people who framed and adopted this declaration. 
And he went on to say that black men had no rights, which the white man was bound to respect. No rights, which the white man was bound to respect. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Tuesday, June 27th, 2017. So I have been told. I remember, seems like eons ago, when a significant chunk of our listeners thought Melissa Harris Perry's show uh, was a threat to, you know, the existence of humanity on the planet. They were so upset with her program, and it seems uh, like just yesterday. Now the show's not even on, but that was from Melissa Harris Perry's uh, segment in 2014. Uh, Folks remember that time period. This was August, uh, the month that Michael Brown Jr. was killed in Missouri. Uh, Jonathan Crawford uh, was killed in Ohio, and this was just weeks after uh, Eric Garner had been killed in New York. Uh, Those are just three of the more popular uh, deaths of black people that happened at that time period uh, where she was kind of putting things in context. The attack specifically facing uh, black males. Uh, Very important segment uh, from that summer, I thought. And ties nicely uh, to the book that we will be discussing uh, this evening. I know a lot of our listeners always super excited when we get Dr. Curry on the program. He's been one of our favorite guests uh, for a number of years. Always appreciate hearing his scholarship today. Especially nice uh, getting to talk about his brand new book. Uh, We've heard him mention that he was working on it. If you go back in the archives, I think you'll hear various uh, points where he's saying that he was doing some writing before he joined us on the program or he had been working on uh, the book. I think the last time he was with us uh, in 2016, we asked him about the book and he said it would be out sometime spring, summer 2017. And that is when it was published. uh, The book, The Man Not Race Class genre and the dilemmas of black manhood uh folks should know who there's a black male on the cover of the book uh people should know uh who that is we've talked about this victim before we'll bring that up in the program Uh, as i said always a pleasure to have him on the broadcast joining us live his ninth time on the context of white supremacy our guest dr tommy curry dr curry are you with us sir how are you doing today sir I am uh, right poorly, but uh, it is always a treat to have you on the broadcast. Really excited to uh, discuss the brand new book. Uh, Thank you so much for being generous with your time as usual. Uh, Anything that you want to share with listeners before we get... Oh, for sure. For sure. Anything you want to share with listeners who this might be their first time hearing from you, just who you are, the work that you do? Yeah, so uh, I am now a full professor of philosophy at Texas A&M University. And I'm a pioneer scholar of a field that has been uh, called Black Male Studies. Uh, the work that I do uh, takes as foundational that racism, white supremacy is permanent, which is an extension of the work done by people like Derek Bell and Richard Delgado, uh, two of the foundational critical race theorists in this country. And I focus on Africana philosophy, specifically the Black radical tradition, uh, which analyzes of various aspects of resistance, be it the militant civil rights movement, armed self-defense, uh, colonial, uh, colonial, neo-colonial, or semi-colonial uh, economic theories, and basically the way in which blackness or anti-blackness uh, is both a cultural and structural phenomena that is endemic to American society. Spectacular. I think we'll 
cover quite a bit of that uh, as we get into the man knot. Um, but before I hop to your book, we're going to try to cover as much as we can and focus uh, the bulk of the broadcast uh, on the man knot. But I just wanted to get in one quick question, uh, a book that actually is referenced uh, in the man knot. So we're not off topic, uh, but a book that you have mentioned so many times over the years on this program. We first heard about it from you. We finally were able to do it on the book club, uh, Vincent Woodard's the Delectable Negro. Wow. I've said to our listeners, it's not in my top 10, but maybe it should be. Uh, it, even though it's not in my top 10, it has had a profound impact uh, on the way that I look at, think about racism. I think a lot of our listeners appreciated some aspects. And even though we didn't agree with everything in the book, which is going to be standard, I want to play a quick, uh, uh, just a quick sound clip to kind of emphasize how much, how radically it shifted the way that I look at things. This is just 50 seconds. Uh, this is a report uh, from WUNC, which is North Carolina uh, Public Radio. Uh, they had as guests uh, Ames Alexander and Gavin Off. Uh, these are journalists. Uh, they did a series. They worked with a team. They did for the Charlotte Observer a five-part series uh, on corruption, sexual abuse in the North Carolina prison system. Uh, so this is just a quick 50-second snippet uh, from that interview, Delectable Negro. The economy, violence, and examples of abuse and torture you investigated. I suppose one example would be the road crew that you looked into. Tell us about that. Yeah, this was uh, in Sampson County Correctional um, Institution. There is uh, 25 inmates filed a, a lawsuit that alleges that they were working on a road crew, and uh, two officers on that road crew would essentially torture them with this extreme hot sauce, this high-grade hot sauce. They would, one, make the inmates ingest it, and uh, even scarier would be they would make the inmates put it on the genitals of other inmates. And the, in the lawsuit, it said this literally blistered the skin, and officers would use uh, surgical gloves when they handled it, yet they were making the inmates take it themselves. Ooh-wee. As soon as I heard that, actually, I can be totally truthful. I can give you the thought process when I heard it. The first thing I heard, the first thing I thought was, I've heard this before. There are other reported examples of prison guards being accused of doing the same thing, exactly hot sauce on the genitals of prisoners. The second thing I thought was Vincent Woodard delectable Negro. And I think this gets to a lot of the core themes of that book. If we're talking prison system, we got to be talking disproportionately and deliberately black males, sexual abuse, and then even hot sauce. That seems to be something people generally associate with eating. Does that connect the points uh, in delectable Negro, Dr. Curry? I think so. I think so. And, you know, while, while I don't agree with everything in his book as well, I think one of the successes of the book is, the way that he connects eroticism and cannibalism and homoeroticism especially uh, to the black male body. So the fascination with black male genitalia, the uh, the need, the sexualization of black men by white men, uh, specifically in the context of the prison industrial complex or even the use of lethal force. I think that's the success of Warriors of Warriors text. That's its its foundational contribution. So when you hear these kinds of things go on um, and chain gangs are, you know, within the prison. You can see that element of black male vulnerability and subjugation in this society play out. 
And again, there's lots of other examples. Um, you know, when Jeremy Johnson, uh, who's decapitated uh, in Mississippi, uh, you see very, very similar types of of, of uh, brutalizations and mutilations of of black women's bodies. And until we start having real conversations about why someone would cut off a black man's head, uh, why Mr. Jackson was decapitated and his body burnt. Uh, why Mr. Campbell was stopped and then sodomized uh, in prison cells, in a prison cell, right? These are the types of things that happen to black men constantly in this society. Uh, and it's completely ignored because we don't think of racism and white supremacy when it deals with men as sexualized violence. We don't think of it as carnal violence. We think of it as death. And we're correct in our assumption of death, but we're also missing a huge piece because what we've done is we've created a schism uh, between how we think about violence, racial violence, and sexual violence. So we'll say, for instance, that racism is sexualized when it plays out on a female's body. So we understand that racism towards black women included an element of misogyny where black women were raised, right? where black women's genitalia, where their bodies became objects of fascination and distortion, being grotesque or being eroticized. When we look at black male bodies, we've largely looked at racism through a heterosexual lens. So we say white men rape and sexualize black women, but we don't take a moment to think, did white men sexualize and eroticize black males? And what I think we see from both the accounts in the book, uh, the decapitation of, of, of Jeremy Jackson in Mississippi, the account that you just gave, is that racism includes an eroticized element of violence that can't be ignored just because it's on a black male's body. And I think when you take this lens and read something like the accounts of castration or the accounts of lynching or the rape of black men in prison or the rape of black men, as I documented in the book, um, by police on street corners or in, or in, or in public, you know, broad daylight, um, that it becomes very, very evident that the enforcement and application of anti-black violence uh, throughout the West, not only in the United States, but also in Europe, uh, includes this idea of sexualized violence and rape of black male bodies. Absolutely. And I, I think from, from Woodard's work, I think he emphasizes that there is a consumption uh, to this as well. That's the hot sauce uh, right. in terms of practicing racism. We're abusing and torturing mm -hmm. you literally and or figuratively consuming that black body, racist, literally consuming right. black bodies. I, Vincent Woodard, delectable Negro. Now on to the main topic for the day, uh, the man not. Uh, I wanted to start uh, just with the title. I think that gets at so much of the core uh, of your work in terms of the system of white supremacy not allowing black males to be men. Everything about this system, the way it's organized, is designed to make sure that black males do not achieve manhood. Uh, can you speak to the title, Man Not? Absolutely. Uh, one of the things that I find happens when we talk about black men in this society is that we use stereotypes to define them. So we talk about black men as hyper-masculine. We talk about black men as patriarchal. But we never address the foundational question of whether or not black men have ever been men. So the man not uh, focuses on this concept that I think was largely debated in the 1970s. Uh, you see this in the work of Clyde Franklin, for instance, and Robert Staples, where they ask if black men could even be men in America. 
And from the research that I did, I saw that black men were asking this question for the last 200 years. And this wasn't a, this wasn't a figurative question. This wasn't an illusion where they somehow believed that they were naturally men. Black men in this, in this country systematically interrogated the idea of manhood and its relationship to womanhood and imperialism. So when I said the man not, what I tried to capture in that term is the positionality, both historically and conceptually, that black men have suffered under within the Western epistemology. So when we look at how black men have been known, they've been known as horrors and terrors. We've seen them as rapists and murderers. We believe that they're naturally deviant and violent. These are not the characteristics of Western men. So because the black male is the negation of the rational, virtuous, moral white male, I felt that the man not is the best way to capture both what is historically described him and what should be the platform or the foundation of how we understand a black male studies, which is the refutation of the ideas that black men are, in fact, the complete opposite of uh, Western civility. Uh, they stand outside of white supremacy precisely because they're its greatest victim. Uh, and I think that this is a new way to interpret what patriarchy actually does. When we look at patriarchal systems throughout the world, we see that racialized males, subjugated males, uh, are its greatest targets. They're, they're largely uh, the greatest victims of homicide, illegal violence, incarceration, unemployment, uh, educate, undereducation. These things largely apply to racialized males within any white supremacist society. So I ask myself a question. How is it possible that we see uh, boatloads of empirical evidence that shows the condition of black men of brown men, of Arab men in certain countries. And when we talk about racism, we never focus on the ways that racialized males are excluded from maleness, which is defined by white patriarchy or some kind of European variant of maleness. So we've just, we just, we dump all the pathology of white males' identity on the backs of black men. And I couldn't figure that out. I was like, given the overwhelming evidence of how black men suffer in a white supremacist society, why do we just conceptually assume that they're, that they're the same as white men in that society? They enjoy none of the benefits. They enjoy none of the power. They have historically been constructed as completely different and opposite. So the man not as a way to talk about that negation, right? The non-being and inhumanity that has been denied black males as part of the male function or the function of manhood uh, throughout history. In the subtitle uh, for the book, Race, Class, Genre, and the Dilemmas of Black Manhood, I thought it's a really important distinction, and you talk about this in the book, that not gender, but genre, when you talk about this analysis of the black male man-not. Uh, can you explain why genre and not gender? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I actually take this distinction from, from Sylvia Winter. Uh, you know, she, she coined the term genre to replace gender precisely because she understood that what we call gender has always been a function of instituting a kind of being. So genre uh, doesn't, is, is the placeholder of what we mean when we talk about a specific kind. Whereas when we look at gender, we have traditionally thought of gender as the subjugation of one kind, namely woman, being oppressed and ruled over by another kind, generally male. 
But that you see that that hierarchical apparatus of gender doesn't do very well to describe what we're actually talking about. We have to describe things like homoeroticism, which is the subjugation of one white male or a presumed superior male group over an inferior male group. Or even when we have to deal with what I call the sexual inversion, which is the ways in which white women have historically oppressed and sexualized black men. Gender doesn't capture that because under the gender dynamics of patriarchy, such an inversion would be impossible. So genre is trying to capture uh, this aspect of being that allows us to talk about the specific kind of oppression uh, that, th that a specific group, in this case black men, suffer without having the kind of hierarchical presuppositions or assumptions that at the end you're always going to get an analysis of men oppressing women. Wow. Context of white supremacy, Dr. Tommy Curry. Uh, we're going to try and read a few snippets from the book, uh, get some questions from listeners as well. I can say I started uh, reading your book, Dr. Curry, uh, in the middle of last week. And right at the time that I started reading your book, I told listeners about this uh, on Saturday. Uh, I walked outside to brush my teeth. Heathen activity, I concede, uh, right just on my block. And within five minutes, uh, a white person called the police on me uh, and said they report they called it in, I guess, what the officer said, that uh, I apparently looked suspicious or like I could have been a prowler brushing my teeth walking through the alley, I guess, somehow. Uh, that was almost the day that I started reading your book. And as I read, it really helped me think about that incident and everything that you talk about in the book in terms of what it means, how you function as a black male moving through society, even brushing your teeth could be rapist, right. thug, looter. It reminded me of an incident that happened 10 years ago. The cows didn't even exist. Only time I've gone to the hospital in the last decade for a problem that I had. I go to the hospital. I'm having stomach issues. I'm literally on my knees as I'm talking to the woman at the counter. She's trying to take my information, writhing in pain on the floor, on my knees. Security comes over. And I think because I'm on the floor, he's going to bring me like a wheelchair or, you know, check. Can we get you something? He's standing and it takes me a minute to rec I'm in pain. I'm not thinking it takes me a minute to recognize like, oh, my Lord, like this is a security problem. Like he's uh, looking menacing. And the woman says, oh, we're fine. He's just in pain. And he says, oh, OK. And he leaves. And I thought like, wow, mm -hmm. I'm at the hospital groveling on the floor in pain. And I'm almost in Eric Garner, Jonathan Crawford, like anything. Uh, could happen in those moments just mm -hmm. this is what it means to be a black male kind of what you talk about in the book just reminded me I hadn't thought about that incident in, in eons uh, specifically this is uh, a passage in the book I wanted to share this is on page 90 where you talk about the prison system uh, and man keep that hot sauce example in mind uh, you write fear must be contained managed it is fear that demands the prison since the prison is constructed to cage the white man's nigger. The prison is designed with his sexual obsession, the white man's homoeroticism in mind. It is a physical manifestation of the racist architecture the white race uses to construct and punish the black male for its desire of him. As a structure, it is imagined to be a place for black male bodies that expends their labor, organizes their brute sexuality for whites viewing pleasure. Like slavery and segregation, the prison is based on what Cleaver calls the all-pervasive myth, which at one time classified the black man as a subhuman beast of burden. 
in Caged and Celibate, Mumia Abu-Jamal says that the prison shackles the sexuality of the inmate because the prison denies the conflict, sociality, and family. Imprisonment, with all it entails, is as much, if not more, an act of state violence than the silent violence of poverty. Imprisonment divests convicts of their social self. It condemns all that makes the black male believe he could be a human being and aims to make him accept as a psychological level that he belongs in the prison because he is a dangerous rapist and killer. Uh, Specifically, I think in a lot of times people talk about all the horrors of the prison. I do not think people discuss it as you lay out here. This is an environment set up to satisfy white, racist, homoerotic viewing pleasures. Can you explain? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I've been exchanging letters um, with a few black men in prison. And one of the things that they've explained that I've learned from, you know, imprisoned black men, political prisoners, is that their bodies become fungible. And what I mean by that is it generally takes an act of will for them to decide and then act upon the fact that they are not the convict that the prison defines them to be. So in, in every effort to read, in every effort to learn, in every by every effort to educate oneself beyond simply the labor of the prison industrial complex, these men, these imprisoned black men are resistant. And when, when in communicating this and, and exchanging some letters and, and reading their writings and, and actually getting some feedback on, on the work that I've done and I've sent to them, it made me understand that what Cleveland was talking about in the prison industrial complex is about the psychological condition of black men to accept themselves as the white world sees them. So it is a structure that is meant for black male bodies to simply be used as labor, just as we, as we know uh, happened during slavery, but also to condition the psychology of black men to align with the way that their bodies are used, for them to accept that they're just beasts of burden, that they're fundamentally savages. But when you talk about the prison industrial complex in that way, I think it unsettles the kind of industrial industrialism, um, industrialism uh, that we've become accustomed to. We're used to talking about the prison industrial complex as a product of the war on drugs. We're willing to talk about the prison industrial complex as an outgrowth of the push for mass incarceration as a business. What we are not willing to do is to understand how the prison industrial complex at the, ver- at the most basic level is reflected of the institutional, economic, and, and the libidinal aspects of white supremacy. That the sexualization of black male body is part of the condition by which they become labor. Right, so when black men were being raped by white men to make them to 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 make them submit to to the to the authority of white men, that's part of the political economy. That's part of the value and the use that you put on black male bodies. But that comes about because there's an eroticization, there's a sexual economy placed on how that body could be used. That body could be raped. That body could be castrated. That body could be used for pleasure. That body could be used to satisfy white women's sexual curiosity. That body could be used in the kitchen. There's, there's all kinds of ways that that body could be used. 
but we don't place that context largely because we misread history, right? We exclude the rape of black men from history. So when we get to the prison industrial complex, the only people that we think of as rapists are the black men who are in prison. So we think that black men are raping other black men, which does happen in some cases. But we don't see that this system is set up with the idea of the white male rapist, the white female rapist, looking upon these bodies that it's preying upon. And that's why I think the work of someone like Cleaver, uh, the statement that uh, Abu Jamal uh, made uh, in, in suggesting that the social self is taken away from black men, that they are cut off from society, that they are cut off from family, that they are cut off from any aspect of the world that would allow them to believe they are more than what the prison and the, and the guards tell them. It's so important for us to understand in explaining the experiences and the institutions that bring about the experiences of black men in this country. Uh, it is not simply death. It's not simply raw numbers. It is a function of how the institutions of society the, the, the very institutions we claim keep us self and safe and are part of a democracy try to socialize black men to simply be laborers. And that labor becomes completely dependent on what the will of the white society is. And, and, this, is, and this is the really important part, Gus, is that this, this condition is important because it is what is spread to the society to allow it to rationalize the murders of black men more generally. So one of the thing that, things that Cleaver tells us, you know, and I, I write about this in chapter two of the book, is that the program against black men is not just about how you get black men to think about themselves, but how you bring black men's thought in line with how society views black men. So the reason that black men believe they're being subordinates is because that's what the white supremacist society says. The reason that black men believe that they're rapists is because that's what the white supremacist society says. The same thing with deviancy. So if you get black men to accept that, then the white society at large gets to say, when you kill a black man, you have now done a service for the safety and order of our democratic society. White supremacy gets to celebrate the officers that got off in the Philando Castile case. Why? Because that is enforcing the order of society. A, a man, uh, a, a police officer killed a black man. It was caught on live, on a live broadcast. And the white society still said, this person is innocent. So imagine what that does. What, think, think about the general will of America. We will that black men, even when they're unarmed, right, can be killed. We will that black men who are armed legally can be killed. There is, no, there is no obstacle to the murdering of black males. So whether or not you kill them or lock them up, black men have now been conditioned to accept, largely because of the power that be, that there can be no resistance against white supremacy. Because any protest, the act of walking down the street, the act of owning a gun legally, the act of not owning a gun, all leads to death or imprisonment. So what does that do to a body to a person, to a man, to a human being that has no resistance against the will of a state, a police officer, or a white citizen who can make them into whatever they want. And this is the experience of black men and boys in this society. So we argue about identity politics largely because we disregard the effect that racism and anti-black misandry, the, hate, the visceral hate of black men, has on black men and boys in this society. The reason that we can argue about who gets killed more by the cops 
and whether or not we should have say her name or say his name rallies or whether or not we should center black women in mass incarceration over black men is because black men come to that conversation or are introduced to that conversation as already dehumanized and disposable. So the reason that 300 black men or 290 black men a year being shot by cops is the same as any other minority group or black women in this case, which has largely been the push by blogs, is because those 300 black male lives don't matter as much as these other lives, right? We're not outraged by the exponential murder and homicide that involve black men and boys in this country because we don't value black men and boys in this country. We believe that they're dangerous. We believe that they endanger our safety. We believe that they harm women and children. See, we've been conditioned as part of white supremacy to accept the misandric notions of black male existence. So while we'll protest and, out, and be outraged every time a black person or a black male gets shot, what we ultimately believe about black male life is that it's not worth saving in many instances. We're outraged by black male death in as far as we get to perform it. But do we want to be around black men? Do we trust black men? Do we love black boys because we believe that they will come out to be honest, hardworking, race-conscious individuals that try to uplift the group? Or do we believe they're going to become criminals that are going to kill, rape, and, and slaughter the people in their own community? You see, these are the kinds of discussions and thoughts that we don't want to have. Because once we start asking those questions, we find out that anti-black misandry becomes a key part of how we've internalized white supremacy and racism. Context of white supremacy. Uh, speaking of justifying any sort of terrorism targeting black males, and I think you make a great point in the book that uh, any black male, you can be a boy, uh, any age, what have you, disabled. We talked about that on the program as well. Uh, and just mm-hmm. black male threat, potential rapist. Uh, we don't want to let this one get any bigger. Uh, you have on 101, and I'm reading this. I want people to keep in mind, uh, it seems even in death, there is still some perceived threat uh, from dead black males. Uh, because Emmett Till, uh, the historic monument in Mississippi uh, to Emmett Till was vandalized. They scraped all the words uh, off of the monument. And I've heard this sort of thing routinely. Uh, this sort of thing uh, happened with Lennon Lacey, uh, who was found hanging mysteriously in North Carolina, where his gravesite was desecrated a few months afterwards. Uh, but on page 101, you talk, you write about Emmett Till. You write, uh, there is an implausibility to the conceptualization of a 14-year-old boy being able to rape a white woman in broad daylight in the Jim Crow South in our effort to care for the threat to white womanhood, which constitutes, which continues to conceal itself in our contemporary anxieties over interracial rape. The black male is imagined to be a superhuman beast capable of overriding the social and structural constraints that prevent his interaction with and access to white women in the South. For decades, scholars have continued to assert that Till's wanting of this white woman was, in fact, an actual threat. Historians such as Stephen J. Whitfield have defended the sympathy Susan Brown Miller shares for Till while nonetheless offering ambiguity and credence to the alleged fear the white woman, Carolyn Bryant, who's an admitted liar, Till allegedly Till's alleged victim suffered. Whitfield offers various narratives in which Till did not simply whistle at Bryant, but grabbed her waist and asked her out on a date. Uh, I thought this was really important because you see this all the time, where regardless of what happens to a black male, 
Eric Garner can be choked, doesn't have a weapon. There's always some sort of justification that, well, maybe he was going to get away with selling that tobacco without paying New York its taxes. Maybe if Emmett Till, if he'd had a little more time, he would have raped her or done something more if he got a little bit older. There always Mm -hmm. seems to be some sort of justification that he probably did deserve what happened to him. Can you respond? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Let me let me begin by saying that, um, you know, Carol Bryant, or or she was married and changed her last name to Donham, uh, was just blatantly lying, right? So in her memoir, you know, and I say this on page one hundred two as well, uh, she confesses that Till never grabbed her or uttered any sexual obscenity. Uh, she admitted that she lied in court. She admitted that she constructed the image uh, Till, who was a young boy. Uh, in the southern imp- uh, image of a rapist and a, and a savage beast. Uh, so that's the first part. The first part is we have to understand that there is no argument to be had by the construction of Till as a rapist because the idea of him as a rapist was a lie, right? So when we look at the justifications, and this speaks to the larger point, when we look to the justifications that we use to kill black men, how much of those are simply the excuse? the rationalizations that a white society uses to justify death. Now, remember, these things don't have to be true. These rationalizations aren't true. Who cares if he's selling illegal cigarettes? Who dies because you're selling cigarettes, right? It's just like the brother who got shot because he was selling CDs out of his car. Who, who goes into a democratic society and says that any, any attempt to break the law means death? That's not a democracy. It may be a totalitarian government, a dictatorship, but it's not a democracy. Right? No other group experiences the kind of fear that black and brown men experience if they, if they jaywalk, if they step on someone's grass, if they look at someone the wrong way. Right? The, this, this is the conditions of black men in this society. So when we hear the narratives given uh, by white supremacists uh, to justify the death of Eric Garner or to justify the death of Tamir Rice, or to justify, you know, the death of, 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 of any, any black man that's unarmed and, and, and decided there's a threat on any given day. We have to act with the idea that the rationalizations of killing black men in the white mind are nothing more than lies. There is no justification for taking a black male's life simply because he offended the sensibilities of white America, Right? There are white people who open carry, who have assault rifles. There are white people who steal. There are white people who rape. There are white people who – there's tons of these people in this country that do these things and still live to tell about. But black men men and boys can't can't play with BB guns. They can't – they can't, you know, they, they can't come out of the wrong door in their own apartment. I mean, this is what we're talking about. The, the, the realities for black males in this society are, are dra- draconian because any offense to, to the sensibilities of any white individual can lead to death. And for us to not take that seriously, for us to not understand that in the case of someone like an Emmett Till, not only does this service to the memories of, and the victims of this kind of violence, but it gives us a woefully and inadequate explanation and system to explain or give an account of white supremacy in America. And this is part of the problem that I have with the way that identity politics and intersectionality has evolved. 
You have people who claim to study black masculinity, suggesting that when we talk about race, when black men are involved, we by default should always believe the accuser. So be the accuser a black woman or a white woman, we should always believe the female accuser. But when you look at the history of rape and rape laws and black males within those systems, there is no account of black men historically getting away with the rape of women. Now, we could have the argument about whether or not people cared that black people were raping and abusing each other. But if we have that argument, we have to also have, and I say this in the book as well, we have to start having the argument about young black boys being raped as well. We have to start talking about men and women in our communities raping black men as well as raping black girls. And I'm more than willing to have that conversation. But when we make that claim, that's generally not what we mean. We don't really want to have a conversation about rape in our communities. What we want to do is say, well, black men are rapists. Black men are raping black women and girls. So black men are, in fact, very close to the stereotypes that white people have of them. So when we look at the history of rape, just like Emmett Till, you're looking at two things. You're looking at black men being falsely accused of rape, which we're all familiar with, right? But then you're also looking at the deniability of anyone being a perpetrator of rape or being a rapist against black males. And when you look at history, you simply cannot demonstrate that black men have not been victims of rape by, black, by white women, by white men. And we've just finished a study that's under review, uh, also by black women in our own community. So we have problems, social problems and perceptions of black males in this society that denies them any kind of vulnerability to sexual violence. And Emmett Till is, a, is, is, a, is an important case because you remember when you read Soul on Ice, when you read Cleaver, he gives an account of Till that stands out in his account of sexual violence in the South. Because he asks, how does a young boy become murdered, mutilated, Right? And then put, put on display as, as a symbol for all of the black people that simply at looking at or whistling at a white woman leads to this kind, of, this kind of violence. So what does Cleaver say? Cleaver says, well, raping, raping white women then simply becomes a mode of resistance. And I completely disagree with Cleaver on this. I think that is barbaric and that this is, this is not the way that we should resist. But this is how Cleaver understood it. Right? And he said that what he had done is he accepted that he too was a rapist. Not just, he didn't just become the rapist, right? He accepted he was a rapist because that's what the Jim Crow South said that he was. But when he came to prison and he understood the homoeroticism of the prison, that sexual violence was at the core of anti-black racism, then he had to reject the idea of the rapist so that he could become a man. And we don't pay attention to anything Cleaver says because he says he was once a rapist. But it's amazing to me that Cleaver's analysis of the relationship between the Jim Crow South and sexual violence and his analysis of the eroticism of the prison industrial complex aligns so well with the historical record if we just paid attention. What we're fighting against is black men being grown, being reared in society that takes their final end to be rape. And this idea didn't just come about in Jim Crow. This was an idea that was debated in the 1860s. This was an idea that white women, white feminists, white suffragists used in the debates in 1867 and 1868 to discourage black men from, white people from allowing black men to get the right to vote. 
This was a position advocated by Elizabeth Cady Stanton. So when we, when we understand the closeness that sexual violence and black male deviancy have to the white imagination and the general move of American politics, then it seems to me almost impossible to fundamentally believe that there is a constituency of black men who believe that rape is about power and who, have not, who are not victims to the ways that sexual violence and rape both against them and being placed upon them or imposed on them as the rapists constitute a key part of their experience in this country. Context of white supremacy, we are discussing Dr. Tommy Curry's new book, The Man Not Race, Class, Genre, and the Dilemmas of Black Manhood. Uh, on page 108, uh, you talk about employment. I know a lot of our guests have said, well, hey, you know, black males, uh, they really, you know, have done well since, uh, quote unquote, affirmative action in the 60s, that they've been able to get better jobs and make better salaries than black females. Some of our guests have said that on the program. Uh, you addressed this at the top of 108, uh, writing historically, black men often fare worse than black women in professional and skilled employment settings because of the different stereotypes applied to black males and the level of education between the groups. Black men are often associated with such negative stereotypes that any assertive act of speech or demonstration of leadership is thought to be threatening. In these professional executive environments, black men are penalized for exhibiting agentic characteristics assertiveness, self-confidence, conviction, while black women are not. This penalty is so severe that a disarming mechanism, for example, a baby face, humor, a skill or quirk that allays the threats that whites perceive black males to pose to them is recommended for black men. Even in middle to top tier jobs, criminality and racist myths follow black men to boardrooms. Class and education simply do not protect black men from the racist stereotypes attached to their lower class counterparts. Uh, I was going to look at this and see if I could do two birds in one stone. If we could uh, get your response <laughs> to this paragraph in the context of the, I guess, minor kerfuffle that you were involved in. Uh, where people kind of went back to a 2012 podcast where you were, I guess, making an assertive comment about Django Unchained mm -hmm. and this kind of spiraled out. It that was the first thing I thought of when I read this paragraph. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, first, you know, the work is based on uh, people like uh, Robert Livingston, who's doing great work, uh, great studies on employment using, um, you know, uh, Sidonius' uh, uh, social dominance model. Uh, and I think, I, so social dominance theory uh, has been a major, I guess, I don't want to say counter-narrative, but it's been that in many ways fundamentally disagrees with the conclusions of intersectional analysis. Because social dominance theorists conclude that in patriarchal societies, um, subordinate males, uh, and in my work on phallicism and the man not, I call them racially subjugated males, uh, are the the most subjugated and expendable targets of patriarchal violence. Uh, that being said, uh, there are quite a few scholars who work on uh, perceptions of formidability uh, who believe or who do studies to show that the darker a man is, so the black man or a brown man, 
Uh, he's always perceived as being stronger, uh, taller, more threatening, a more formidable threat to survival of whites. Uh, given that research, uh, Livingston, who's the person uh, whose research I'm talking about in that paragraph, uh, said that this applies even in middle-class and top-tier executive jobs. So his work was looking at the stereotypes or the discomfort uh, that white employers or CEOs had with educated, assertive black men. And what he found in his studies, and there are several studies that document this, even studies on manager styles, uh, they found that when a person's agentic, showing that they're confident or assertive or outspoken, uh, there's higher penalties for black men and white women and lesser penalties for white men and black women. And that's very interesting because when you look at the employment data, so Billy does a book on this, uh, you know, what do employers say? And in their study, they show that while white people do hold negative stereotypes of black women, uh, of them having attitudes or them being aggressive, when you compare black women to black men as employees, white people read the stereotypes of black women more positively. So they say they're aggressive, but that means that sometimes they have more go-getting attitudes. They're more serious. They're not lazy like black men. When they say that they're strong-willed, they believe that this is because black women have to do with black men who don't provide and take care of children. So that even in employee-employer setting, there's a belief that because black men are so lazy, deviant, and criminal, that the stereotypes of black women, when placed in relationships to that, actually become positive markers and, and reasons that they're preferred over black men in employment settings. The same thing happens in agentic studies. So while you can say that there are racial stereotypes, and this is true, racial and sexual stereotypes that affect both men and women, when you talk about black men in these environments compared to black women, there's a much harsher penalty for black men because confidence is considered arrogance. Uh, any kind of notion of assertiveness is assumed to be aggressiveness. Uh, any kind of disagreement is taken to be uh, dangerous, criminality, or anger. So even amongst CEOs, right, this behavior has primed a white audience. So what Livingston concludes is, well, you know, there has to be some kind of disarmament mechanism. There has to be a way that black men can survive in these environments. And he says, well, it's basically through making themselves appear as if they're safe. And to make themselves appear safe, they have to have baby faces or they have to crack jokes. They have to share some kind of semblance or interest uh, with their white counterparts. And that's a lot of emotional work for black men. So, and, you know, and you can just think of it largely in reactions. I mean, even the experiences I've had in the academy. I've been on committees, I think I've shared this before, where people have flat out said that, they shouldn't, that we shouldn't hire black males, that, that black males who gave excellent presentations and, 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 and job talks uh, were, in fact, incompetent. Uh, that black men who who dared to assert that they were smarter than their white counterparts were arrogant. That the black men who stood up against racism were angry. And these are some of the nicest people, right? People who 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 would never who would never you know raise their voices at the conference, even though you know some of the white audience members deserved it. This is how they were described, simply because they dared to stand against the opinions of of of, of, a, of a white academic class. So. When you look at this, when you look at the way that black men are being treated, it's no surprise that black men and, and brown men as well are two of the smallest groups, are, are the lesser, the least represented groups in the academy. 
Uh, now, in terms of how that relates to the Django Unchained, I mean, I think it just kind of proves the point, right? Um, I'm actually the irony of of the of the reaction that the alt right and even the administrators of Texas A&M had, like the president, was that I was criticizing uh, the conservative backlash against Jamie Foxx, saying that, listen, Jamie Foxx made this as a joke, and that's fine, but we should take it more seriously because there's actual historical evidence. Uh, there's actual council slave revolts and black people taking up arms to protect civil rights and, and peaceful protesters that need to be respected as part of the mainstream civil rights history. And because I insisted, and I still do insist, that black Americans have a right of self-defense, that black people have to defend themselves from a tyrannical state or white vigilantes, uh, people suggested that I was, in fact, saying that we should kill all white people. Now, it is certainly within my academic freedom as a professor to write about any topic I see fit, and that includes revolutionary violence if I chose to do so. But in this case, my work and my research, as you know, has focused primarily on uh, the radical black tradition, which has chosen the language of self-defense uh, more so than not, rather than revolutionary violence, to talk about why it's going to take up arms and why it should take up arms against white vigilantes or rogue cops or just white supremacist organizations like the KKK historically. But the idea is that a black man is making the argument that black people have a right to defend themselves against white violence. And that, as you know, is one of the biggest threats and caricatures of black men, the militant black men um, in, in the United States. Right? I mean, this is how we criminalize black men in the imagination of whites, that they're the boogeymen, that they're teaching, that they're spreading the propaganda of killing white people. When in fact, I'm making a very simple point, that white violence sometimes has to be met with violence, that in order for black people to actually survive this, this upcoming civil rights movement, because I believe that we're heading back to those times where we're going to have to rethink many of the beliefs that we thought uh, were central, or many of the things we thought we gained by the civil rights movements of the 1960s and 70s, uh, we're going to have to have the conversation about, about violence and, and armed self-defense in a world where cops, white citizens, and even institutions like colleges are not willing to protect free speech or our right, our right, right to peacefully assemble or protest. These are going to be real conversations because we're talking about uh, white Americans who believe that black people talking about racism is an attack on America. And these white Americans have been utilizing intimidation, violence, and in some cases death because they killed a young black man uh, up at Bowie State uh, simply for disagreeing with their views of the world. Uh, these are very dangerous times. Absolutely. Absolutely. I believe uh, the great Robert F. Williams, Negroes with, gu uh, with Guns, I think you quoted from him in your text as well. Uh, on page 157, and I'm going to get some of our callers as well, but a couple quick uh, passages I wanted to get your comments on. You do a great job uh, in the book of really, and you've talked about this on the program with us before and written about it, but in the book, uh, just really emphasizing uh, the omission of the sexual abuse, sexual violence against uh, black males. And you write on page 157. <clears throat> No reason or justification was put forth to warrant the sexual assault of the black male slave. His rape was the totality of violence, the natural extremity of the violence of the day. The rape of the black male slave had no socially recognized justification. 
It was an act of white barbarism that did not pretend to maintain the moral superiority of the master. It was simply the complete brutality and the animalistic sexual domination of a black male body throughout, whereas the black female body was objectified to endure, to reproduce and be a sexual thing for the repetitive enjoyment of white men, the black male body offered no reproductive benefit to the white men and was sexually objectified to satisfy the sadistic cravings of white men and women. The black male was not meant to survive the sexual encounter beyond the white man's infatuation, since doing so would be proof of the white man's homosexuality to himself and to a public that viewed homosexuality as a violation of the puritanical ethos of his day or beyond the white woman's infatuation since he offered proof of her infidelity and sexual promiscuity. Uh, when you say that in these encounters of sexual domination of uh, enslaved black males, that they were not meant to survive these uh, sexual encounters specifically with white men, what do you mean? Well, when you, when you look at the history and accounts of rape uh, in the literature, um, you, 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 you have narratives of black women surviving these encounters, right? Um, the suffering, uh, being forced to bear children um, that were the product of rape by white men, and just kind of the everyday occurrence. We, see, we also see this, you know, by black women you know, were doing domestic work and, and throughout Jim Crow. But there are very few accounts of black men being raped. And when you see those accounts, uh, often their accounts as that, that are offered as punishment, right? Uh, that, that white men rape uh, black men or boys as punishment or as a demonstration of their superiority. And because, at least in the United States or in America, um, there wasn't much evidence, there wasn't a history or a culture where homosexuality was publicly accepted. Right? There's no account of, I'll say it this way, Part of the racist mythology of black women was that they were hypersexual. And because they were hypersexual, they seduced white men into raping them. Right. Uh, and part of that seduction was that white men became the victims of this kind of sultry African female essence. Right. So in other words, white men rationalized that they made this rape them. There is no account that I could find in the ethnological literature uh, of black men seducing white men. There is no mythology of why white men were attracted to black men uh, in the United States. So when we get these accounts, what we see is just straight brutality, the, the utmost enforcement of violence and power on black male bodies. And sometimes these cases within, uh, as in the case of, you know, in, in South America, uh, with black men being affected with venereal diseases like syphilis and dying, uh, sometimes these cases were used as punishment, uh, as we see in the, in the, in the case of Stewart. Uh, but at every point, there is nothing, there is no account of black men being embraced or accepted as, by the public at large as a sex thing or a sex object of white men. So this was particular violence aimed at raping black men punishing them and eventually extinguishing them or eliminating the evidence through death, right? And I think that that's a very different account 
of rape during slavery because there is no reproductive function. White men could rape black women and produce another slave, right? You can't rape a black man and produce anything. In fact, when you look at the histories of white women raping black men and becoming impregnated, usually they killed the baby, the black, the black man who impregnated her, and sometimes the white woman. So death completely circumscribes the sexual abuse and violence of black men within the slave system. So the question becomes, then what was the incentive to do it? If you wanted to kill black men, you could kill them, list to make an example, their bodies are completely fungible. So to rape them means that there was some other incentive beyond reproduction, beyond the symbolism, right, of being able to rape this kind of body, because these white men are not wanting to be seen as anti-Christian or homosexual during this period of time. So the question becomes, what is it? And I, I theorize that it's simply the brute level of violence and power. That black men were raped to make an example of what their bodies could be and how they could be bent and distorted by the power and will of racism in white men, white male sexuality. Speaking of uh, Quentin Tarantino, I always point people back to Pulp Fiction with that scene with Ving Rhames. The white male doing Absolutely. the sodomizing is in an Absolutely. outfit that looks like could be a police officer. Uh, and Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah, he is a police officer. There you go. Um, th- you, you touched on this point already in talking about uh, racialized males uh, and racialized males would be non-white males, victims of racism, white supremacy. Black males would qualify racialized males. Uh, you talked about how uh, a lot of times with these theories that come out of historically white academies, uh, intersectionality or feminism or patriarchy, uh, they will say, well, uh, females, uh, they are the most mistreated. Black males, you know, they are uh, borderline rapists anyway, and they're almost patriarchs or aspiring to be, so they're not the most mistreated. And you write, this is on page 170, kind of the bottom of 172 going to 173, you write, uh, racial arbitrary sets actually invert the gender relations of the patriarchal society and generate the counterintuitive prediction that minority men, not minority women, should be expected to be the primary targets of racial and ethnic prejudice and discrimination. Racialized men or the subordinate male target have been shown to experience the most extreme forms of violence and discrimination in patriarchal societies throughout the world. In Western societies in particular, racialized men face harsher discrimination in housing, retail employment, criminal justice, and education than their racialized female counterparts. This difference is not simply happenstance since social dominance theorists have shown that the treatment of subordinate males, arbitrary set distinctions, is common throughout white patriarchal regimes. Contrary to feminist accounts that locate women as the primary targets of aggression in patriarchal societies, this theory appropriately named the subordinate male target hypothesis maintains that discrimination against both dominant and subordinate women is not primarily driven by the desire to harm, destroy, or debilitate them, but to control them. On the other hand, discrimination against outgroup males appears to have a distinctly aggressive and debilitative character. Stated differently, while it is certainly the case that women will be discriminated against and repressed within patriarchal societies to maintain social hierarchies because they are seen as threats and competition for various resources, 
racialized subordinate males are marked for extermination. I thought this was a very important point beyond just uh, oppression Olympics and, you know, who's more mistreated. I thought this was really important if we're saying that one group is being mistreated for the purpose of control. One group is being mistreated for the purpose of extermination. That is a substantial difference in how the system is operating. Can you Absolutely. elaborate? Absolutely. And, and, you know, and, and, you know, I've been a harsh critic of intersectionality uh, precisely because of this issue, right? Uh, it doesn't give us a way to ascertain the exact consequences of the violence that happens to certain groups. And what you usually have then is a comparison of police violence to domestic violence. And this is one of the issues uh, that I recently brought up at a conference where I said, listen, you know, the reason that we don't have lots of work on women in the police is not simply because black men outshadowed them. This just was not a feminist concern. So when you read any of the feminist literature from the 1980s, be it Bell Hooks or Beverly Guy Chateau, uh, or even Patricia Hill Collins, for that matter, in, in the late 80s and early 90s, you do not see discussions of black women and incarceration or black women and poli- police state violence. Uh, the only account that I found during the late 90s, I believe, or maybe it's the early 2000s, that's talking about black women and police killings or police brutality is the work of Joy James. So it's a completely under-theorized aspect of black feminist investigation during that period of time. Now, that doesn't mean that black feminists can't theorize about it now. There's certainly new works that are looking at the prison uh, industrial complexes' effect on black girls, et cetera. But when you look at the overwhelming amount of studies and uh, the focus on and just the, the sheer numbers, the, the demographics of black men who are incarcerated in this country uh, compared to black women, then you have to just ask yourself why. Right. If the, if the intersectionality thesis holds up, be it the additive thesis which says that black women are doubly oppressed because they're male and female, uh, they're black and female, or the interactive approach which says that well because black women uh, occupy two vulnerable positions, uh, their experiences are going to be contextualized or based on you know this kind of unique position as a black woman. Uh, why don't we see comparable levels of homicide, uh, state violence, or incarceration with that group? And what social dominance theorists are saying is like, well, the reason you don't see that is because racialized men have always been considered to be the threats to white patriarchy because racialized men threaten the ability of the white race to reproduce white people. Now, feminists don't like this analysis. They haven't done a very good job answering this analysis. Uh, one of the reasons that we have the term or the idea of intersexual invisibility is precisely because uh, the authors, uh, Purdy Hughes, uh, suggested that the additive as well as the interactive aspects or accounts of intersectionality did not do a good job in explaining the oppression of racialized women because they said, these are psychologists, and when you look at the facts, it does appear that racialized men experience more job discrimination, uh, have worse experiences of uh, harassment uh, in 30-day intervals, are incarcerated more, killed more, uh, experience more housing discrimination. So they're saying based on the evidence that's the case. So what they suggested, and this is what I think is one of the most deplorable uh, theses that have come out of uh, intersectionality theory, is that men, racialized men, are killed more and discriminated against more in patriarchal societies because they enjoy the privilege of being male. 
Now, one of the problems with that, and they focus this idea on androcentrism, one of the problems with that is they suggest that because racialized men or black men are male like white men, then white men kill and oppress black men because they recognize the masculinity, the maleness of the racial of, of the racialized male. But then when you talk about women, they say that the very same violence against women in a society, even though it's less lethal and to a lesser degree, is evidence of their oppression. So this is why I say, for instance, on page 176, that the ideas of intersection and invisibility um, actually holds a contradictory view of patriarchal violence, because it suggests that violence against women in a patriarchal society is evidence of their lower status and domination under patriarchy, while the greater levels of violence against racialized men in the very same society is not evidence of their dehumanization, but thought to be the effect of their privilege as men. So if such a thing is true in the very same society, then it means that the genocidal logic, the literal killing and incarceration of black men, has no moral foundation, has no normative weight, no ethical calculus that could account for it next to women. So in other words, no matter how many black men you kill in a patriarchal society, because they're not women, they're going to be said not to be as oppressed as women, even though women are, by the admission of intersectionality or intersectional visibility theories, are less oppressed or less subject to lethal violence. This is a problem with our conceptual schema. This is a problem with how we conceptualize the idea of gender. And because we're not willing to do the work to think outside of the paradigms that we get from black feminism and uh, anthropology that they've inherited from the second wave white feminists, we're just left twirling our thumbs and giving completely pathological accounts of black manhood and black maleness um, that, that we would think were just deplorable if applied to any other group. Imagine if we said that women are being raped and killed because of their privilege as women. Imagine what would happen to that scholar or the person that said that. But we feel more than comfortable saying that the incarceration, the death, the homicide, the unemployment, well, these people are, that's happening because their privilege is men. This is ridiculous. It does not account for the realities that black men are suffering. Uh, one of the recent things that I've discovered uh, when we talk about black males in this country is that a lot of the terminology that we utilize, uh, and, and I'm speaking specifically of the term hypermasculinity, a lot of the terminology that we utilize to describe black men um, actually comes from accounts of racial, uh, of racist social science. So the idea of hypermasculinity, for instance, uh, was a name that was given to the female personality disorders that black boys were thought to suffer because they did not grow up in nuclear families with a strong male role model. So white sociologists suggested that because black men grew up in households led by their mothers, that they identified more so with female personality traits than they did male personality traits. And in some tests, they even compared black boys in single mother households to white boys in single mother households, and they found the same thing. And black boys tended to be more like their mothers are more feminine in their choices of their occupation, their interests, and even some of their political views. Now, the effect of this was that these white social scientists suggested that female personality disorders in men led to delinquency. 
And part of this delinquency was what they called hypermasculinity. So I deal with that because black men or racialized men growing up in single mother households could not, in fact, be women, but they were broken men, so to speak. They would act out. They would become criminals. They reject everything that was feminine, so they became rapists. They became, you know, studs, pimps, delinquents, so deserters, etc., right, womanizers. And this was all part of the idea of hypermasculinity that was given as a, the dominant account of black, no, black men's personalities for 30 or 40 years in this country. So what we've done is we've adopted certain terminology like hypermasculinity under the guise of gender theory when it's literally insidious cultural deprivation theory that we claim that we disown in reports like Monaghan. So the Monaghan report said that because black women were in charge or the matriarchal structure of the black community were so far out of line with the patriarchal structures of white society that the black community was failing. We rejected that. We said, no, this is a different order. This is a different structure. There are different family kinds. And that doesn't mean that they're dysfunctional or that they're any less than white cultural types. And we've endorsed that and believe that because Monaghan was a racist. We use the exact same logic and terminology that Monaghan himself adopts in hyper-masculinity, and we allow black men to still remain pathological and delinquent because they are lesser men. They are suffering from not being the same kind of men, which in fact is ironic because they're counted to be feminine men, as, as, as uh, feminine men in comparison to white men who are patriarchal real men. So we've adopted a term like hypermasculinity that's just based in, this, in a flat-out pathology and an assumption that black men are, are, are culturally delinquent. And this becomes the way that we describe them. So under intersectionality, we've imported theories like hypermasculinity. We import theories like black male privilege. We've imported and utilized theories like invisibility or intersexual invisibility. And all these theories presuppose either the dehumanization or delinquency of the black male subject. That's why we have to have something like a black male studies, because no one has interrogated the origins of these terms or concepts that they apply to black men. We simply assume that, look, hypermasculinity is in line with how we think of black males as violent, so it must be true. We think of black males as not being strong men that don't have high self-esteem, right? Dorothy Hyatt said this in her report to, to uh, the Commission of Equal Rights on the, uh, the Status of Women in 1963. We say, listen, they have low self-esteem. Of course they want to be like white men. Everything about how we account for black men in society either legitimates the violence against them or offers us an account of their, of their self-esteem and psychology that is rooted in some kind of maladjustment to, their, to racism. And the important part about this, I say this in the introduction, is that on the one hand, we get accounts of black women where they have strong personalities, that they've created traditions of resistance, of, of fighting against white supremacy. But when we talk about black men, the only thing we can talk about is their loss of manhood and how they would do anything as pathological and depraved as it may be to regain that. So it means that black men somehow have to be rapists to feel like they're men, they'll do it. If black men have to become capitalists, they'll do it. If, if black men have to imitate their oppressor who lynched, castrated, and raped them, they'll do it. We, we, make, we make the conceptual leap that black men are so depraved, so savage, that they will do anything to capture even the smallest bit of humanity that they think they get from their white oppressor. And then we recount that because their fight for humanity isn't really humanity. It's for power and the ability to dominate and subordinate others. So what concept of a black male, be it a man or a boy, can we have when even today 
the dominant literature about these subjects, about black men and boys, is that they are oppressors, that they're delinquents, that they're abusers of women, that they're hypervigilant, I mean, hyper, hyperviolent, hypermasculine, and hypersexual. Right? What, kind of, what kind of theory can you develop if that's the mainstay idea of the, of the literatures that we're dealing with right now? Right? So that's why I'm saying that we have, to, we have to go back to the drawing board, so to speak. Intersexual invisibility gives a legitimacy to a phenomena and an experience of death that simply does not honor the lives of black men and boys in this country. It simply relishes in the fact that they're disposable. The accounts that we have of black male privilege are empirically false. They're little more than a rhetoric that seeks to uh, capitalize on the vulnerability of black men in, in the academy and other, other uh, you know, skilled industries. It, it largely is a rhetoric that attempts to deny them the benefits of affirmative action compared to their, their black female or white female counterparts. Because it suggests that even though they're the least represented in the academy, even though they get the least uh, amount of degrees, even though they suffer most from unemployment, they're so undesirable that no one simply wants them as a colleague or wants to invest in the potential they have because we simply believe that they're just not worth it. And we see this reflected not only in teachers' attitudes as early as K-12 literature, we also see this reflected in parental attitudes, that there's so much that, that we invest so much, so we just don't invest in the intellectual or the academic capacities of black men and boys. So this is something that's reflected not only in, at, the, at the level of college, but we also see it all the way through elementary schools. And this is, this is part of the program. This is part of the misandry. This is part of the violence um, that's done at the societal level as well as the institutional level, uh, like cops and courts and, and, and prison industrial complex. Uh, we, have, we have a real problem with how we view, understand, and analyze uh, black males in this society context of white supremacy last uh, question before I get to some of the folks who dialed in uh, you reference in the book uh, Professor Athena Matua and some of her work pushing back against this notion of black male privilege and uh, black males uh, benefiting from patriarchy uh, and she talks about specifically uh, a kind of uh, gendered uh, a, racial, a gendered racial violence that black males uh, experience uh, she's been a guest on our program uh we talked about uh some of these issues and and your work uh on the broadcast uh when i spoke with her and this was at the end of 2016 for people who want to listen in the archives it did not seem like she had entirely renounced or let go of the notion of uh mm -hmm. black male privilege it seemed like she was still pretty much committed to that and i told her that just to me the i know we we had a big uh dispute or not big dispute we just didn't agree she said that uh white women uh, were worse off than black males in in terms of employment. And I said, just to my knowledge, I didn't have the statistics right in front of me and she didn't either. But to my knowledge, that did not make sense. I think I, I emailed you and you sent me the Department of Labor Statistics, which showed that white women are oh, doing yeah, better yeah. than black males in terms of employment income specifically. Uh, she emailed me uh, because I said before she exited the program, I told listeners that I just I think the entire concept of, of black male privilege, that somehow black males are beneficiaries uh, of patriarchy. Uh, it is beyond folly. Uh, I, I can't even walk outside without uh, I can't walk outside and brush my teeth without fear of being arrested. Uh, I am not exerting right. any power over anyone, uh, male, female, 
child, anyone. I'm just trying my best to not be killed, slaughtered, thought of as a prowler when I'm walking in my own neighborhood. She wrote me back, and I'm just going to give you the two quick ones. She said, uh, despite your concern about the word privilege, you asked me about black male privilege. I explained that black men have some privilege by virtue of being men. But I noted that this was complicated by race, which meant that in some circumstances, black men were made more vulnerable by being both black and male. That is, they suffered from gendered racism, as in racial profiling, the subject of my work some time ago. In other words, the reality of black male lives is complicated. It is not either they are privileged or they are victimized by gendered racism, but instead both. From my perspective, black men benefit from being men in a male-dominated, male-supremacist society. Here, you wanted examples. I gave you examples of wage differentials and community-focused leadership. Though I could not remember the details of the wage differential, these differentials are persistent facts that even Dr. Curry has had to deal with in arguing that black men have no privilege. If they are not sexist, doubtful, or do not believe in male supremacy. Yet, you claimed I provided no examples. One of your callers inadvertently suggested another area, the area of opportunities in sports, because society is male dominated and prefers the engagement in sports by men. There are lots of funding for professional male sports in contrast to women's sports. Though black men were prohibited from fully participating in certain sports for years, they now benefit from the expanded opportunities created by this preference and domination. They benefit from these opportunities. They actually have more of these opportunities than do women. I am sure you can think of other examples. I think this point is uncontroversial. The letter was longer. I will stop there. How does this sync with the man knot? Well, I mean, again, you know, this is, I think, one of the problems. And, you know, let me say So anytime I give accounts of black male privilege, especially in terms of wage disparities, um, I usually come with numbers, right? So I don't just assert that these things are true. I usually can say, look, you know, if you look at the, you know, the Bureau of Labor Statistics or Department of Labor Statistics, you know, you'll see these kinds of disparities, uh, which is really surprising um, that that Professor Matula would say that, given that, you know, for at least the last two decades, probably even longer, uh, you know, you can see that white women have, have certainly made more money uh, than black men. Uh, you can see this even in the numbers they cite, the 77 cents uh, per dollar of white men uh, that they constantly cite is far greater than the 64 cents of, of black men. So for her to suggest that black men have an advantage in income over women across the board is just false, especially when you look at the selection bias that I talk about in Becky Pettit's work. And I believe she was a guest on the show as well, where she explained, uh, you know, how these statistics are done by the Department of Labor or the, B, uh, the BGS, the Bureau of Justice Statistics, um, often overlook uh, men who have been unemployed longer than six months, as well as men who are incarcerated. So it's just manifestly false, given the research that's been done in this area, that you can make the case that black men benefit uh, in terms of wages and income uh, more than white women. That's just empirically false. And, and once you take into account the selection bias and the overtime works, uh, more than black women. It's simply not true. Um, in a, here's a very easy way for people to think about this. What, what Matula would be suggesting 
is that while we know that black women have outstripped black men in education since the 1970s, she would suggest that the 30% of black men who do have degrees comparable to the 60 or 70% uh, of black women simply out-earn them. And given that that number is less, it means that black women have had much greater opportunities for social mobility and employment. Now, that gets complicated when you look at things like the debt-to-income ratio of black women in this country. But if you're talking about purely income as an average of what the whole group make, Matula um, is just incorrect. That's the first point. The second point is, notice the move that she makes. She suggests that in a male-dominated society, all men benefit from the idea or from the structures that allow them to be men. But then she makes this claim that says, well, there are all these examples like police brutality, life expectancy, employment, uh, you know, education, where black men do worse than all men in society. And she suggests that, oh, well, that's just because of the effect of racism. Now, let's ask this question. If the effect of racism is such that the alleged advantages of men disappear in most of the things that we value before, like work, our life expectancy, our home ownership, etc., then why do you make the conceptual leap to suggest there's still male privilege just because they're male? So in other words, if the only examples you can point to are wage disparities, which we know are false, especially compared to white women, uh, and in most cases, uh, educated black women, uh, if you know that it's false in terms of life expectancy, if you know it's false in, in terms of uh, education, then what's the basis? The, that black, there's more black than the NFL? Right? Like, does the, 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 the Title IX, the, the fact that they fund college sports or professional sports, become a marker of, of, of black male privilege? When you look at how black men are exploited, um, both in college and in professional sports, look at the, what they suffer. Look at how they suffer brain damage. Look at what happens to their body. Most of these black men are not educated, right? These black men use this as a way to, to get out, to, to push their bodies to the max, to compensate for the, for the opportunities they don't have in society. What she didn't say, and, and this, is why, this is why I don't like the privilege language, what she didn't say then, that if we see the investment in male sports, we also see that women have pros because we see the divestment of the criminalization of, of women in society overall. Do we say that women have privilege because they're not, they're not prosecuted or incarcerated for murder or, uh, or rape or, or domestic violence of men? You see, this is what the kind of language ends up doing. It just says pick an area where women or men have an asymmetrical consequence and then say that that area represents privilege. Because notice, Matua's account is completely random. She says, okay, on the one hand, it's wage differentials. On the other hand, it's college and professional sports. You know, on the, on the next hand, it's, it's community leadership. So black men are, and this is, goes back to the intersectional visibility argument, right? Why do black men take the lead or become the center focus of, you know, of marches like Trayvon Martin? But they're killed at such a, a higher rate. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't march or we shouldn't be outraged when women get killed, but it's the same thing with domestic violence. There's over, there's over 4.9 million black male victims of domestic violence in this country, and there's 6 million black female victims of domestic violence in this country. Lifetime problems, right? 
nobody's marching for four mil, four point nine or four point seven million black men. They're, they're, nobody even acknowledges that they're there. So do we? Do, is that a is that a black female privilege? So if black men are centered in community leadership, and black men are centered as victims of police violence because they're the greatest number, do we say the same thing about black women? See, the problem is the randomness of what of the example. Right, that you're not giving me a structural account. You're not saying that male privilege operates in such a way that men are economically and educationally, you know, privy over women. Because if you do that, then that structure doesn't apply to black men. So the minute that you do and you say, oh, there's male privilege and black men don't benefit, then you say, oh, well, here are three examples where black men come out on top of black women, and that's examples of black male privilege. But but Tua also gives you an account of disadvantages. It says that black men suffer higher police brutality. So by effect, if her argument is true, then black women have privilege in that case. Black men are, less, are, are more incarcerated, then black women have privilege in that case. Black women live longer, then black women have privilege in the case. Right? If, 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 that's, if that's what you're going to do and compare it for that, then you have to have a kind of black female privilege. As you and I both know, that is not what feminists or intersectionality theorists are going to say. When black women surpass black men, nobody has an explanation of why usually ends up being black women are stronger, they work harder, et cetera. So there's this kind of Protestant ethic that goes along with the successes of black females in this country. When black men succeed, when black men outstrip their female counterparts, be it in jobs, be it in education, et cetera, it's because of patriarchy. So black men get jobs over black women. In the few cases that they do as a group, if they get hired, it's because of sexism, right? They were sexist against the black female counterpart. Black men lose jobs to black women, Oh, well, she was more qualified. She was smarter, hard earner. They're trying to diversify, right? These, these, we're, we're just, we're picking concepts and terms out of a hat. I don't, I don't know what it means, given that black men have always been outnumbered, especially in the academy, right? And even, even in law school classes, you know, Matua's a lawyer, given the, 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 the underrepresentation of black men in these fields, what, what kind of privilege do, do they possibly enjoy next to their female counterpart? And that's not an issue of sexism. I'm not saying sexism doesn't exist. I'm saying that you can't suggest that sexism is the causality of the underrepresentation of black men, and in this case, comparatively, the overrepresentation of black women compared to black men. Right? They're both minorities compared to white people. But what explains this this kind of reversal? Why are black men doing so bad in in universities and academic settings? I would say that it's because of of, of anti-black misandry. I would say that it's because you have this subordinate male target hypothesis, which says that black men can't succeed. Why were black men suffered more unemployment than black women? I would say the same thing. She would have no account because that doesn't fit. Traditionally, white men are males have worked more and worked uh, higher paying jobs than, than females in this society. That's not the case for black males, right? So there, there, has, to be, there has to be some account, right? And at the very basic, at a very basic level, um, for God's sakes, at least stay, you know, know the data. Uh, two is just completely wrong. I mean, and I believe I see you both the Pew study as well as the uh, Department of Labor statistics. Uh, she's just empirically wrong on the, on the fact that black men do better than white women, both in terms of education, employment, and income. Uh, white women overwhelmingly uh, do better than black men. And now that trend would be different in the 1980s. Uh, but at least since the mid, the mid to late 80s and certainly since the 1990s, white women have far outstripped uh, black men over the last 20 or 30 years in terms of income and employment, right? Uh, so, again, like I said, I think we have to get away from ideology uh, and what people presume they know and, and get to what we can actually test and prove uh, when it comes to this group.
Amen. Amen. I uh, when I I just when I read the response and particularly when I got to the end, uh, I just said I'm not. I'm not sure I'm willing to accept the fact that there is one LeBron James or Floyd Mayweather here and there to say that, yes, all of us black males have privilege privilege uh, because one or two of these folks exist every now and then. It seems like they still, even with all of that, are struggling quite a bit. With, I think they just painted nigger on LeBron James residence at any rate. Uh, the folks yeah. who called in. Who, but, but, but again, but really quick, don't notice the argument. I mean, how many black men are in the NBA, in the NFL? Like, if you, if, you, if you add up all the people, all the black men that's in those two, because those are the two big sport leagues, right? If you add up all those black men, what percentage of the population do they, are they, are they actually? Like 1%, 2%? I doubt they're 1%, right? Given there's like 12.9 12, 12. million adult black men in this country. So I doubt they're even 1%, Right. How, what does it mean? This is what I'm saying about how dishonest we are about talking about black men. How dishonest is it to say that a, a group of black men who are athletes that have a shelf life of maybe 10 years, I think the football, I think the NFL is like five to seven maybe, right? But maybe 10, 15 years of their lifetime, they'll, they'll earn this amount of money, that that represents a structural privilege. And think about all the black men who spend their lives trying to get there that will never get there, that are uneducated, that are unemployable. So you're telling me that all the black men have a privilege because they participate in sports that could lead to the NBA or NFL, and you exclude the thousands, the hundreds of thousands that don't make it and end up in poverty on the streets or addicted to drugs because that fits an example. See, that's what I mean about the dishonest interpretation of the black male experience. I'm not going to deny there's not a Kobe Bryant or a LeBron James. But for every Kobe Bryant and LeBron James, how many hundreds of black men and boys spent their whole lives, went through college, and didn't go to class, were used up by college, got injured, that couldn't make it there because they were trying to get out of their circumstance, right? That's not, that's not, that's not an honest way to interpret, to interpret the group. You wouldn't, you wouldn't say that because they're Serena and Venus, right? Because I, I, I love tennis. You wouldn't say that because black women are, that there's black women playing college tennis and black women in, in, in the United States, you know, who are, who are doing well in tennis and, you know, in Germany and Europe, that these women represent the privilege because there's far less black men, <laughs> right, in the ATT. You're not going to say that that small percentage of women who become millionaires are Serena and Venus represent the privilege of, of a group of women. No one would say that. But when it comes to black men, well, you know, they fill up the NBA. We use them as seats. We, love, we sure love that entertainment. You know, we love seeing black men box each other and, and get brain damage, right? And they can't speak by the time they're 40, in their 40s and 50s. But they sure have a lot of privilege right there, right? The ones who make it are, de- are debilitated. The ones who don't are impoverished. But it's a good job that we can put those black male bodies on display for white folks who make all the money off of it. Really? Really? So we're the, the whole group, right? All 19, all, all 19, 18 million black men have privilege because of these few sports that pick at best hundreds of them. We, we have a lot of work to do in terms of how we think of black males in society. Ah, Shay. Absolutely. And I think unless my memory is bad, Kobe Bryant was real close uh, to having some rape issues himself. But that is another discussion. Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> uh, the person who called in uh, last four digits, uh, 5136. Did you have a question for Dr. Tommy Curry? You should be with us. Call her at 5136. 
Uh, yes, um, how you doing, Gus and Dr. Courage? I have a question. This big, big victim from Birmingham, Alabama. Um, my question is, I wish the, um, the scholars would you stop using the, the word, the term civil rights movement and move to the word a battle um, against white supremacy. Do you think that should be implemented, sir? Because I feel I like the, um, I believe the civil rights movement was was a battle against white supremacy. But they keep, they, but they, they, with my, but back in that time, you know, you do your study and research, they called it the wrong thing. That was not no civil, that thing was bigger than the civil rights movement. I believe it, it, it should have been phrased as a battle against white supremacy. That was, that's what it was all about. Uh, can uh, I get on. your uh, comment on that, please, sir? Thank you. Yeah, well, well, first, I, I agree with you. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the things that happened in the Civil Rights Movement with, uh, you know, Derrick Bell and his mentor, Robert L. Carter, uh, was that they understood that fighting for desegregation in the 1950s uh, was kind of a Trojan horse. Uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a pirate victory uh, because it masked the real issue, which was white supremacy. Uh, during that period of time, lots of people, uh, especially the lawyers, thought that segregation was the major uh, with the foundation. It was the origin of American racism. Uh, and years after Brown v. Board, and this is actually part of the reason that the Civil Rights Movement, specifically some of the radical aspects of the Civil Rights Movement came about, uh, is because they understood the issue was white supremacy. So I agree with you on that front. Uh, will you get scholars to call it something different? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I think that scholars very much like the jargon of their disciplines, and the Civil Rights Movement or the Civil Rights Era or the long civil rights area, whatever we like to call it, uh, has become kind of solidified within the literature. So I think people are going to use that for a long time. But I do agree with you, especially given the work that I do uh, with people like Robert F. Williams, uh, the Panthers, uh, Pan-Africanists, uh, that there was an idea that the civil rights movement uh, or what they were fighting for after desegregation was in fact a battle for white supremacy. And I think that if we did a serious reading of Martin Luther King, uh, we see that Martin Luther King believed the exact same thing. Uh, his argument in Where Do We Go From Here was that white supremacy uh, requires economic exploitation to lessen the lives and bodies of, of, darker, of the darker races. So he said that it's through labor uh, that people become uh, dehumanized and worthless, and race is merely the target, the marker that allows you to know who you can and cannot exploit. Uh, so, in many ways, I agree with you. Uh, I'm, I'm just I'm skeptical uh, that the language is in fact going to change. I have another question, sir. Sure. Can I ask you, Gus? Yes, sir. Um, with um, Doctor, Fr I listened to an episode with Doctor Chris um, Wesley. Um. She said she somebody asked her about spirituality of white people, and she said basically said don't 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 be concerned don't 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 think about it in that way because it'll only confuse you. Do you think we need to start tapping into that and trying to seek out white people live they they the white people live their life like 
there's no like that when you die that's it it's over with life is over with you know and i feel like you know they they need to be they need that they need to be warned about when you after all this all this evil you doing down here you're gonna die and you know i that's the best way I can phrase it, but they 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 just live their life like you know there's no afterlife. You know, I believe after you leave, after you leave here, you going somewhere, and you're gonna be judged on well, what did you do while you had your time down here on this earth. Do I think the scholars should tap in to start doing research on the spirituality of white people? Elijah Muhammad, they stopped him from uh, Can we just get to the, the to the question? I just want to try and get to as many of the calls as we can. The do base. you believe, Dr. Kerr, do you believe white people are a race of devils? Thank you. Um, a race of devils. I think, I think white people have been culturally situated to disregard the lives of practically every other group. Uh given that I'm not a very religious person myself in that sense, uh, I don't know the accuracy of calling uh, white people devils or I don't, you know, I, I know what it's supposed to convey, but if we're talking about the actual violence, brutality, the dehumanization that the white race has historically rained down on other groups of people, then yes, I think that they're are dehumanizing uh, and tyrannical. Um, but I don't know. I wouldn't, I personally wouldn't use the word devils. I don't, you know, for for me, studying white people is a historical and sociological uh, project, right? We can look at the violence, we can look at the brutality, uh, we can empirically study and situate uh, the effects of, of their cultural beliefs and their political actions. Uh, so once we do that, uh, I mean, you're dealing with uh, tyrannical violence, you're dealing with racism, you're dealing with a delusional ethnocentrism, and you're dealing with a cognitive dissonance that even amidst genocide maintains a cultural superiority and, and moral virtue. Uh, I think that those realities are more than enough to get us where we need in explaining uh, the problems of white supremacy and the white race. Appreciate that, Dr. Curry. Uh, folks can just get to their question. That would be great. The way we can try and get to as many of the callers as we possibly can. Uh, the caller last four digits, two zero nine five two zero nine five. Did you have a question for Dr. Curry? Good night, Gus. Good night, Dr. Curry. Um, my question is, uh, good night. I'm a school counselor um, in D.C., and I was wondering, do you have any, I guess, strategy, or do you find it helpful to talk to our young uh, black boys specifically about white supremacy and racism? That's the Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's so important. Uh, I think when we talk about racism and white supremacy, um, we need to keep in mind uh, that it doesn't just affect black boys. Uh, so when I talk about these issues, I'm much more apt to talk about uh, the specific effects of racism and white supremacy, which is what I call anti-black misandry or racial chauvinism, and how that particularly affects uh, black boys differently than it affects black girls. Uh, so as a father of two daughters, uh, I'm very well aware of the research. My wife and I constantly uh, talk about the ways in which black girls are affected in terms of self-esteem, uh, aesthetic concepts of beauty, uh, competence, authority, etc., uh, aggressiveness, right? Uh, but with black boys, 
you see different aspects of that. You see a lack of parental involvement, a lack of parents believing that black boys are academically gifted, uh, the inability of teachers uh, to identify black boys as gifted, uh, the perception of black boys uh, acting out or disagreements or even playfulness uh, being constructed as threats, dangers, and criminality. So there are different aspects that of, of black maleness that have different perceptions when you talk about racism and white supremacy. So I think it's very important uh, to talk to uh, young black males about this and about the reality that confronts them uh, because what this ends up doing is it leaves them kind of out in the cold, so to speak. Uh, we have tons of conversations about the stereotypes that affect young black girls, right? Uh, but we have very little that talk about how black boys are affected. Uh, for example, uh, many teachers believe that black girls are more competent and academically gifted than black boys. So what does that do, what does that do to a young black male's self-esteem, right? Uh, we see the over-representation of, black boys, of young black boys in special education classes. Why is that the case, right? So we have to teach parents and other young black men to identify uh, these traits, these, these, these tendencies, uh, these kind of institutional policies that are going to discriminate and target um, black males in vastly different ways than uh, young black girls. And largely we want to do that to both aid them uh, academically, right, to increase their resiliency against this kind of uh, anti-black misandry and racism. But we also want to do it because one of the end goals that, that, we, that we need, and this is one of the things that I actually, I generally disagree with my brother's keeper, one of the things I did agree with is we have to start talking about black and brown male matriculation. Right, black men or boys are not, or young black boys are not graduating from high school. Um, they're suddenly not entering college. So there's a pipeline issue there um, about academic capacity and opportunities that needs to be addressed. The uh, educator in D.C. Did that answer your question? Yes, thank you. For sure. Oh, thank you for the question. For sure. The caller who dialed in uh, last four digit. Oh, this is. Uh, I guess the person who called in from a blocked number, a uh, person who called in from a blocked number, if you had a question for Dr. Curry, uh, your line should be open. Oh, give me one second to make sure I get the correct, uh, trying to make sure I keep the order preserved uh, that people dialed in. Okay, person who called in from a blocked number, did you have a question for Dr. Curry? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes. Well, greetings, Gus. Uh, this is Jay out of New York. I'm not sure why my number is coming up blocked. Um, greetings, uh, Dr. Curry, uh, to the callers and listeners. Um, Dr. Curry, I had a question, and, and thanks for all your work. Um, I've uh, Since I've been following the cows, I've uh, tried to pick up a couple of uh, your items, listen to a couple of the shows, so uh, thank you for your work. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, one question that I had, um, Dr. Curry, I've been following a lot of this LaBar ball situation and the tragic arrangement um, that's going on with, you know, all the hype that's going around his sons right now. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts around the racist sports media giving all the attention to him being this great father now, um, how they introduced it, that kind of got the... Uh, black people kind of behind him pushing, you know, but everybody has forgotten about this tragic arrangement and how this, um, I just feel that this, I wanted to get your thoughts in reference to, do you feel that this is kind of a way to kind of 
popularize this tragic arrangement type of narrative, um, you know, out in the mainstream and then kind of pushing this fatherhood from that perspective. I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Oh, well, I'm of two minds about it. I think that when black men do anything that's against uh, the norm, that they're going to be demonized, right? I mean, you know, think about what, what they said about Richard Williams when he came out and said that Serena Williams would be, you know, the best tennis players in, in the women in the game. Uh, there's a problem with black men being fathers first and foremost, right? Uh, because we generally have the perception that black men don't take care of their families, right, more so that they're incapable of doing so. Um, I think when you're looking at the ball situation, uh, you're you're looking at, uh, you know, when he went on that show and attacked the white woman and Jason Whitlock, you know, called him a sexist and dangerous and all these other words and God, you know, went after Jason Whitlock. I, I think that what you're seeing, the backlash to the idea that black fathers can aspire and engineer their sons uh, specifically, uh, but even, you know, even daughters for success in, in a pro industry. But when you look at professional sports, the idea is that white people are the masterminds of that. So you have no problem seeing white fathers as engineering their sons or daughters for Olympic gold or for professional success. For a black men to do it, I think it's still on the idea that he's incompetent. How could he do such? On the flip side, you, you, as you say, it is kind of a deal with the devil, right? Because he's basically he's basically reared his sons uh, to be NBA stars, and that's. I mean, I don't want to say that that's typical because if he could pull it off, where all three of his boys play for the Lakers, that would be extraordinary. But at the same time, um, it is us kind of buying into these are the only avenues for, for black males that, that we become supremely successful. Not when we get all three of our sons into medical school or lawyers, but when they play in the NBA. And to be honest with you, when I look at the evidence of discrimination against black males, I can't, I can't actually say uh, that, that training black men uh, for success academically is going to necessarily give the payoff. I mean, unless unless your sons, unless black men go to the best schools and have the best persona, you know, it's very difficult for black men to climb economically, you know, just in the regular society. So I think I think that he has uh, made a wager. I think that he is marketing his sons in the most um, outspoken and recognizable way that he knows how. And I think in the case of his first son being drafted uh, number two by the Lakers, that, you know, it worked out in this case. But given the options that black men have in the society, I honestly can't say which one is better or worse because it seems success for black men is in, in the society, despite education, is, is kind of the luck of the draw. Right? The Ball family taking advantage of some of that black male privilege in the area of professional sports. Um, the, person who <laughs> the person who called in, uh, I guess you... Uh, also on a blocked number, uh, it seems you have a headset, so at least you'll know who you are. Uh, if you had a question for Dr. Curry, you should be with us. You're on a headset. Do you have a question for Dr. Curry? Hello? Oh, greetings. This yes. is Can I hear? Yes, sir. Well, it shouldn't have been blocked. I definitely put my number in as well, but that is okay. 
I have two questions. The first one is, Dr. Curry, can you expand, uh, expand upon the idea of um, permanence when it comes to Derek Bell? Is that to be confused with the, uh, that racism is itself permanent or that permanence that no, no matter what happens, that racism is going to remain despite whatever gains that um, black people make within it? And then the second one is from your book on page 21. You said that um, black men are by far most the most liberal sex race group in America. They start dating earlier. Hello? Yes. yes. We can hear you. Okay. They start dating earlier, have the most liberal sexual attitudes, and are most inclined to have non-marital sex without commitment. And then you follow it up with, Within the institution of marriage, black men are, the, are more involved than other males in doing housework, tending to children, mm-hmm. and sharing decision-making with their female counterparts. To me, those two sentences seem a bit contradictory. How so? And I'm um, fine. Sure. Um, well, let me, let me say by saying, uh, so black men have historically had liberal attitudes. Uh, this is not too far out of the trajectory of black people generally. Uh, because the sexual debut or the age at which black people start engaging in sexual practice is usually much earlier than their white counterparts. So black boys, for instance, usually have their first sexual experience uh, before the ages of 14, uh, and black girls usually have a first sexual experience before at the age of 17. Uh, that being said, we've also documented that some black boys have lost their virginity as early as the age of six uh, and as uh, between 6 and 11 in a, in a different study we did. So that's to contextualize that there's not the same type of puritanical beliefs associated with sex that you usually get out of traditional accounts of patriarchy, which suggests that you know, men own women's bodies, um, men judge women for not being virgins, um, that, that people use kind of the Christian notions of, um, of female virtue and purity uh, to gauge the status of women in their communities. Uh, so that's what that first sentence is really kind of talking about. Um, the second sentence, however, is saying that but in the, in the institutions of marriage, so when a black male decides to marry um, a black female, um, they're extraordinarily capable fathers and, and husbands. That we, we largely think that black men uh, don't take care of their children, uh, but they do. Uh, we, tra- we traditionally think that black men, because they don't have as much earning power, um, become abusive and they fight against black women, um, and a lot of the studies show that they simply redefine the breadwinner bread role, that they don't always have to make more money, that they're, that they're valuable, that they can do more housework, that they tend children more, that they help in homework more, right? So it's, it's kind of talking about two different aspects of, of black life, right? So when we're single, uh, we, we have, you know, much more liberal sexual attitudes towards our female but when we're married, we're extremely good fathers and very competent husbands. So those those are what those two sentences uh, we're trying to express, right? Um, and in terms of the, the first question you asked about permanence, um, it was the latter interpretation. Um, Derek Bill argues that racism is a permanent feature of American society uh, because the structures like courts, uh, economics, um, you know, institutions of higher learning, law schools, et cetera, are always going to maintain the white majority. Uh, insofar as that's the case, black people will never have a substantial hold in either the wealth or the political future of America. And I think that we can see the latter point of Derek's uh, thesis uh, with the recent election of Trump. Uh, this was a debate, the election of Trump largely happened between two 
opposing white factions, one that was liberal, liberal, moderate, progressive, uh, and, and feminist, and one was that, that was insidiously uh, ruling class and ethnocentric and conservative. And in that battle between those two white groups, black people lost. Now, Derek suggests that the reason that these kinds of battles and interest group politics happen is because black people simply don't have the political power to dictate the direction of laws or policies in the United States. Uh, in fact, he goes so far as to suggest that one of the reasons we know that racism is permanent is because black people only make gains when it aligns with white people's political interests. And part of that political interest is, you know, like in the case with Obama, white people were suffering, they were losing money, uh, you know, you had the bubble, you had Occupy Wall Street. So it was prime time for these moderate college-educated white students or young white people to vote for somebody that they thought could benefit them. And you fast-forward eight years by president, and you have this huge swell where we lose the kind of moderate liberal whites, and we get this huge swelling of reactionary uh, conservatism and even the growth of you know Tea Party and what has now become alt-right uh, politics. So Derek would say that this is part of the cyclical nature of American race relations, where any perceptional or symbolic gain, uh, like the election with Obama, is 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 uh, almost immediately met with a backlash uh, to those to those gains, and we see that very language uh, being used in Donald Trump's campaign. That under Obama, uh, we lost America. America became a non-white country. It had a non-white leader, someone who was thought to be a terrorist, who was thought to be a Muslim, who was thought to not be a real American. Right. You know, because Trump was part of the birther movement. Uh, all this fits within the kind of notions that Derek has articulated to account for the structural reproduction of racism, uh, you know, inter perpetually uh, in the culture and the institutions of America. So uh, I think that I think when we talk about permanence, we're not saying that it's, it's static. We're saying that there's going to be cyclical changes that will always reassert white supremacy and racism even when we think there's been societal or, or legal gains for black people and other minority groups. Appreciate that caller. Uh, the person who dialed in, or this is our uh, caller from Canada. Uh, did you have a question for Dr. Curry? Oh, hello, yes, hello, Dr. Curry. Um, I have two questions. Sorry, so just let me know if you can hear me because I kind of lost my voice this weekend. So We can hear you. Yeah, I got you. Um, Okay, in regards to intersectional invisibility theory, one of the things I noticed just in conversations with people is that, or just in, in and out of academic spaces, is that the belief that a race-first approach is male normative by default, do you think that this may be an additional problem with the invisible invisibility theory within intersectionality in regards to black males? I mean, yes, you know, it's the problem. The problem I have with this is that the historiography that intersectionality uses is so small, right? Because when you, so when you look at what black feminists are reacting to in their texts, like, um, you know, Jean Nobles uh, and the souls of my black sisters are beautiful, or even the early work by Bell Hooks, you know, Ain't I a Woman in 1982, is they're reacting to, to largely to the Black Panther Party, 
They're not really reacting to the civil rights movement at large. They're reacting to black power where black militant black men led the movement. And they're saying that the rhetoric used of race is reflective of black men's interests. But that's one snippet of time. So if you go back to the 19th century, which is an area that I study, and start talking about ethnology, then black men and black women were fundamentally invested in a race-first approach. Uh, black women were, were suggesting that they needed manhood. Uh, when you look at the you know, huge the encyclopedic volumes of the history of suffrage that was edited by Elizabeth Cady Stanton, there's testimonies in there by black women saying that we, we would put aside our right to vote for the manhood of the race because that's what leads to racial advance. So I don't know, I don't know what they mean when they say race positions are inherently male because over the centuries, the race positions have changed based on how people have defined race. So in the 19th century, there were no genders, so everybody, men and women, were fighting for manhood. Uh, Anna Julian Cooper made the same argument. Ida B. Wells made the same argument. So everyone was invested in, in the racial manhood. The same thing happened during Jim Crow. Uh, the only time that you really get a problemization of this, uh, given that before the 1960s and 70s, the idea of manhood, there, there was no even word for patriarchy. They kept talking about paternalism, right? So, and black men were, were considered to be victims of paternalism when you look at the work of, you know, Alva Myrtle, for example. example. Um, so if you're going to talk about race consciousness being male, hence patriarchal, then it's such, from such a small snapshot of time that I think that one is woefully inadequate, and two, I don't know what's the, what's the, I don't know what's bad about that besides saying that it's male, right? Like, it didn't, it didn't exclude anyone. If you take that argument to be true, and Title VII was written with this idea intact, then the, the policies that black men fought for in the civil rights only overwhelmingly empirically benefited uh, white women and black women more. So I just don't know the stake in saying that unless you adopt a feminist view which says that there's something inherently wrong with masculinity. But then again, when you look at the stuff on masculinity, you find that there have historically been multiple masculinities, uh, subordinate masculinities, subjugated masculinities, et cetera, that have been much more progressive than even feminist identities. And, you know, this is one of the reasons I really like Connell's work, where she's talking about how there are different aspects of masculinity that are that, that are that, that are less invested in patriarchy than even emphasize femininity, which is largely Western liberal and capitalistic. So I just I just don't know what that word means unless somebody is making an actual argument saying that race consciousness and black masculinity lead to some consequence, which is largely going to just be a stereotype because empirically black men haven't benefited from anything in the rhetoric of manhood besides victimization. You know, we have tropes that talk about racialized manhood in churches or in politics or like harkening back to black power. But there is, there are no institutions in America that are specifically geared to the benefit of black men. So I don't, I just don't know what they're talking about. Okay. Thank you for that one. Um, now to my second question, I don't know if um, you've been following some of the debates about cultural appropriation yeah. But one of the things I noticed, there was an issue, I think it was a rap group, The Migos, or Migos, and they had Katy Perry performing with them, and then she's criticized as being a cultural appropriator, which I do agree with, but DeRay McKenson came, I guess, yeah, and spoke with her, and 
and he was very pass. Okay, so he was very passive and very appeasing. And some of the commentaries I saw is that that black men always cape historically for white women are very historically submissive to them, which to me, just just in my quite frankly, I just thought it was simply just a readaptation of the black male rapist myth, and that white women are completely. That that's how I saw it. And I just want to know your thoughts on. Well, that. look, I don't. You know, this is this is what I really don't understand. Okay, and I'm I'm very serious here. So how do black men who were thought to be sexist, misogynist, and rapists historically cape for white women when those when they're usually the group that black men are thought to be sexist, misogynist, and rapist against? Right? Like the you know when when Catherine McKinnon makes her argument about black men in the white workforce. She says black men uh, try to do the same thing to white women that white men do. So her account, and this is endorsed by Kimberly Crenshaw because this is the definition of gender that Crenshaw utilizes in, in some of her in her understanding of intersectionality, was that men have black men have privilege precisely because when they move into you know um, you know law schools or law and profession or you know the workforce, they can exercise sexism against white women and and all women really black women and white women. So I don't know what that means if you if you then have a narrative that says black men historically cape for white women. Um, because I, I just don't I don't know of any historical text where the argument is black men have taken up for white women. These are these are stereotypes. These are stereotypes that are that are bred from the internalized racism that says that black men prefer white women over black women. Right? Just plain and simple. So when you have those kinds of stereotypes operating, then it makes sense to say something like historically black men cape for white women because it's just the stereotype that everybody accepts. There is no evidence that black men historically support organizations or endeavors by white women over black women. You know, uh, just like when you read, uh, you know, the work on black men, like Estes' book, Excluding the the fifth chapter where he talks about black power and he doesn't like black power. He thought it was masculineness. But previous to his chapter on black power, he gives a long history of black men fighting for the rights of black women. The same thing with Danielle McGuire's piece uh, before she came out against, you know, Nate Parker um, along, along with black feminists. She was saying that black men supported black women's organizations. I mean, when you look at Robert Staples' book and, and the work that black men did um, around the question of rape, or when you look at LaFrancis Rogers Rose's book on sociology, the work that black men like Nathan Hare, Robert Staples, uh, et cetera, did around the investigation of black women. You, re, you know, Joyce Latner's book, you know, the, the work that black men did in SNCC to advance the cause of black women. You know, it's, I just don't, I don't know what it means. Like somebody has to give me some concrete historical examples. Otherwise, I think it's just the stereotype that's based in anti-black misandry, right? It's just, it's just what we say because you can say anything you want about black men and it becomes true. You know, it's, I remember one of the most ridiculous ones was on the movie Get Out. And I think somebody posted a blog or a comment to Lativity or something where they said, you know, black men are drawn into white women. So that's why that white woman was able to capture so many black men. But black women know better. They know to stay away from white people. And that's not true, right? When you, when you look at interracial dating attitudes amongst black men and, and, and black women, um, they're pretty much equal. It's just that black women have much less success um, marrying outside of the group to white men. So, you know, it's like I'm constantly telling people, it's like, look, if you look at the Pew studies, if you look at the, the survey data, 
you know, you see black black men and black men and um, black males and females uh, largely believe the same thing, um, given their class and education levels. So if they say, "Oh, I'm more comfortable now dating white people or a white man or a white woman or you know in a same sex relationship with a white person," and that doesn't translate into marriage, that doesn't mean that black women are more loyal to the race. It just means they're less successful in getting or marrying out of their race than black men are. It doesn't mean that they're less inclined to date outside the race. And I think that these very simple uh, concepts, these very these things that we could actually look up and prove, uh, escape so many people because they're so invested in one side of the narrative that they can't take the time just to think beyond what's being said. Uh, and I think given that um, there's just a lot of work to be done uh, in terms in, in terms of how we explain black males that just that can't be taken up uh, within the language of black feminism uh, because it assumes so much pathology. Uh, alongside black males. I mean, you know, when you look at Bell Hooks' work, and you even look at this trope of black men being domestic abusers, I mean, this is the same argument that Elizabeth Cady Stanton and white feminists were making in 1867. Right? They, they were saying that black men shouldn't get the right to vote because if you give them that kind of political power, they're a tyrannical class that's going to abuse their women. So you're telling me, it, I mean, it, so the, the argument is that the white races in 1868 were right, and in, 19, in the 1970s and 1980s, uh, 100 years later, that's what we see. We look at black men and we say that because they want power, they want to dominate, beat, and, and rape the women. I mean, come on, right? This, but this is, this is the paradigm. This is the story of black men. And then when you go read the actual ethnographies of black males by white sociologists who are like interviewing people like, you know, uh, LeBeau, who's doing Tally's Corner, you see all kind of accounts of black women beating black men, which kind of speaks to the legitimacy of my work um, where we talk about bidirectionality and mutual violence in our communities that are bred not just because, you know, of, 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 of domestic relationships and problems, but economic issues, self-esteem issues, uh, issues of racism and systemic oppression. Uh, we, just, we have to do a much better job than simply you know, quoting Crenshaw uh, and Bell Hooks every time we have, have a problem um, about, about the empirical life and, and living of black males in the society. Um, it's just time out for us using uh, black feminist historiographies as the end-all, be-all of black males. Uh, there simply is no other group that is so uh, pathologized uh, in theory or in practice or in the real world as black males are. And I think black men have the right and, and, and have the duty to empirically investigate their own realities from their perspectives. So I think that when you have those kind of arguments about cultural pre- um, appropriation and black men caping for white women, you know, at, somebody, at some point somebody has to say, show me the receipts, you know. Uh, the caller who dialed in, I think they're from a black number as well. Did you have a question for Dr. Curry? 2812, 2812, did you have a question? Yes, sir. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Hey, good evening, Dr. Curry. I bought your book for my father, and he said it was heavy but necessary. So uh, that's a well, shout thank out you so my much. dad in New York. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you so much. questions for you. Uh, the first question is, um, Dr. Welsing appeared on this program many times, and uh, one of the things she always used to mention was that the purpose of education and getting a trade was to come back to the uh, quote-unquote black community and use those skills to uh, kind of uplift the community and help your people. It has seemed like that years where, and I've heard you talk about this frequently, to where the people that are most being abused by white supremacy in some of these urban neighborhoods are almost not even thought of. Um, you know, the yes. 
the, the black males and the black women that are in these neighborhoods, they're like talking points, but nobody really wants to address uh, these problems. Do you have a specific theory on why non-white people specifically, their attitude has changed from wanting to help these communities to almost kind of want to separate themselves from them? Yeah, um, actually in chapter in chapter three of my book, I talk about the political economy of niggerdom. And, um, you know, part of, part of my argument is that there's a stigma attached to writing seriously about black people. And I endure this stigma constantly in the academy, uh, which is that if you study black people, uh, if you study working class black people specifically, uh, you are ideological, you are... Um, you are less intelligent. Uh, you are, you know, it's, it's all kind of, right? If you, if you don't, if you don't buy into the idea that black people are culturally depraved or pathological to some extent, um, then, you know, people, people generally don't like your scholarship because you have to think most of the popular theories about blackness, uh, be it black feminism or black queer theory, uh, you know, most of those theories assume that there's something wrong with the black community. They're homophobic, they're sexist or patriarchal, they're abusive and deviant, right? Um, these theories sell see, because that's what white liberals want to see. Because if you say that the black community is damaged and you need your theories to solve it, um, then it makes you marketable. Uh, and I, I write a long piece in, in, in the book about uh, how many of, the, many of the arguments against black men are really about this kind of academic managerial class where people bond over the fact that they get to uh, all say that something's wrong with black men and they make their careers out of saying that they're the answer to it, right? But then when you go in and actually study, and I, you know, and I, and I cite studies by other black feminists, uh, like Ellen Simeon, uh, who does great work. She's actually from my, from my hometown, uh, where, she, where, she major, where she challenges this idea. You know, and that's not to say that there aren't black men who are sexist and there aren't black men who are misogynist, but that's not all black men. That's not even the majority of black men historically. Uh, and it's not to say that, uh, you know, when we look at working class black people, we don't have problems like domestic abuse and crime and homicide, et cetera. But again, that's not all black people, right? Uh, and, and I especially say this in regards to black men. You know, I mean, in a given year, you may have five or 6,000 uh, homicides that, you know, single offender uh, homicides, black men uh, killing other people, men or women. Uh, but there's, you know, there, there's 18 point something, almost 19 million black men in this society. There, there's 12.1 million of them that are adults. What is what is 6,000 of, of 12.1 million, right? Like the 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 minority, right? Of I mean, same thing with with intimate partner homicide. You know, a few years ago, I think 2014, 191 uh, black women were killed in intimate partner homicide uh, by black men. That's less than a millionth of, of the adult population of black men in this country. So what does it mean to formulate theories um, based on 1% or 1 millionth of a group? And I think that that's what happens in the, in the academy. You, you get people trying to distance themselves from black men and, and, and working class black people, even though it's only a fraction of those people who end up being locked up or incarcer- and incarcerated or are, 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 uh, perpetrators of, of homicide. So the stigma of liberal arts theory is that you can take less than 1% of any group 
you know, and are certainly less than 10% in, every, in practically every case, but in, in the case of domestic violence, less than 1% of the offenders of that group, and then make an overall case for why all black men are all working class people, or, you know, all poor people think X. And I, I just, I think that that's just a morally deplorable position to have. It's a stereotype. It's not an actual theory. We just call it a theory because we don't care about the people. So they, and they, since they have no humanity, we're, we're bound to respect. We just say, well, fine, nobody's going to argue with us. Nobody's going to argue with us that black men aren't this way. And if black men do argue with us, we'll just call them sexist, and white liberals are going are, are to listen to us. We don't have a theory of how black man masculinity evolved, so we'll just start from the 1960s and read that backwards. We don't know anything about ethnology. We don't dare to find out what black men were actually, actually saying beyond a few quotes by Frederick Douglass and W.B. Du Bois. And we say, I mean, think about it. I mean, think about how offensive this is. We pick two or three black men and their quotes and say that that's how all black men thought, right? So black people coming out of slavery, we're going to pick the people educated at Harvard, like Du Bois, and say, well, Du Bois says something that's indicative of him not being as gender progressive as we thought. Then that's going to represent what all black men thought, right? Which is what Carvey does in her book on race men. That's what uh, Beverly Guy Chantal does in her her book um, Daughters of Sorrow, right? And this this becomes the main the mainstream idea, right, of of what black men are. So I think that you know there's class dynamics going on in the academy. And I think that when we start seriously studying working class black people outside of these pathological lenses, and that informs theory, um, that that's the only way to truly understand black life in America. Appreciate that, 2812. I'm trying to just get uh, one question so we can hopefully get a few more folks before Dr. Uh, Curry departs. Uh, the caller, uh, let's see, caller... Six nine. Oh, I think we got uh, six nine zero zero. Did you get your question in, sir? Six nine zero zero. Yes, uh, greetings, Gus. Um, I think the um, it registered me as a block number for some reason, but yes, I did ask the question already. Great, thank you so much. Uh, the caller three four four zero three four four zero. Did you have a question? Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Grand evening. Um, Gus and Dr. Curry, thank you for your work, both of you. I've listened to the town so much. I've been in the archives for a long time. But on to my question. Um, so as far as the hostiles on the genitals thing with um, the people in prison, um, I believe that's the pain and suffering that racists jag off to. And um, I've come to the conclusion that white men get off turning black men into submissive beings. Um, more submissive than white women or their dogs, and I just wanted to know um, what you thought about that. Well, I think, I think there's certainly evidence for it, right? Because um, if if we're if we take um, if we take a psychoanalytic or even an approach uh, based on eroticism, then it would seem that the subjugation of, of black men certainly uh, does have that kind of effect. I mean, this is what James Baldwin was talking about in his essay on going to meet the man, right? That the, the white cop uh, couldn't, couldn't get an erection to have sex with his wife. But when he started thinking about the lynching of a black man, when he started thinking about um, him beating uh, black protesters, black male protesters, uh, he got an erection. So I think, I think Baldwin uh, would agree with you uh, in that regard. Right? I, think, I think it's true. There's, there's clearly an eroticism. You know, when you look at 
when you look at the brutality that white men commit against black men in this society, there's clearly an eroticism associated with black male death. Uh, and the fact that black men get their testicles, you know, uh, tased, that they, that they get innerly penetrated by, you know, plungers and guns and, and, and pistols. It says something about how how that excites white men. Can I can I um, just add this really quick? I'm so sorry for interrupting Dr. Curry, but I thought of this incident before the program and her question jogged my memory. There was an incident in Florida. This was reported. Fort Lauderdale cops fired for racist texts and video about killing black people. This is from March of 2015. Uh, I'm not reading the whole thing. There just was one portion that stood out. I asked Dr. Welsing about this. You can give us your thoughts too, Dr. Curry. Holding one texted to Alvarez and Wells after they've been looking. This was uh, reported one of the texts. After they've been holding one of the suspects who fled from stealing a Volkswagen. I had a wet dream that you two found those niggers in the Volkswagen and gave them the death penalty right there on the spot. This is a white officer who sent a text message saying he had a wet dream that two black people stole a car. Two other enforcement officers found these two black people and killed them on the spot. And he had a wet dream about this. And he texted the other officers. This got found out and they all got fired. Uh, is that or what? Yeah. Your thoughts, uh, Dr. Curry? Well, I mean, you know, at support, you have to send me that. That supports my argument. Right. I mean, listen, the. You see, the problem, the problem we have, like if somebody said that, and, and this is what I mean, Gus, if someone said that about a black woman, right, nobody would bat an eye because people was like, yes, white people are turned on. White men are sexually fascinated with their abuse and the sexualization of female bodies. They can rape them. They can, they can sodomize them. They can anally penetrate them. They can you know, force them to perform anal sex. They can do all kinds of things to their body. But then with black men, they're just like, no. The only thing they do to black men is kill them, right? And I'm, and I'm trying to figure out why we truly believe this, because it's just so overwhelmingly untrue. I think most black men who live in the world um, have, all, have all experienced, um, you know, like I'm a bigger guy. Every time I go out, a white man's looking at my physique. Oh, do you work out? Do you lift weights? Do you play football? You look athletic, you know? I mean, you know, I took my girls out to Mr. Gettys and Lake Charles. There was a white man sitting across from me while they were playing games, and he's literally talking about my body. He's like, he looks like you could binge about 200. Look at your shoulders, right? Like, this is an experience that black men have. This is an experience that I have all the time, you know? Uh, and I actually told my wife about it. I was like, I truly believe that the idea that, uh, that, that people ask me, do I play football? You know, I'm 37 years old, right? I got gray hair. There's no way I still, I, I play football right now, right? But I think that this is, it's the code for how they are fascinated with the black male body. And I mean, and this ha happens from all age groups. I, I saw someone in the uniform of, I used to go to Catholic school, uh, St. Louis in, in Lake Charles. And, you know, I saw a, a group of guy, white men in the uniform. I was like, oh, you go to St. Louis. And I was like, they're like, yeah, I, was like, I used to go there too. First thing, oh, we're on the football team, right? So there, there is this fascination and eroticism of, of, of black male bodies. And I think there, there was that case where uh, white boys sodomized a, a mentally handicapped a black man with a clothes hanger, right? And they escape jail time. You know, th th this is something that happens to black men, and it's something that's been historically there. So I think that these are, you know, this is just kind of a statement of fact at this point. Uh, this is just what happens, right? Racism against black men 
uh, simply includes elements of eroticism that often result in rape or uh, some form of genital mutilation. It's just, it's, uh, given the evidence that, that I've accrued and the stories that I'm still compiling, uh, that just seems to be a fact at this point. Appreciate that. Uh, 3440. Uh, the caller at 6689. 6689, did you have a question? Last yes, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes. All right. Hey, guys, this is Cam in Wisconsin. Um, I just want to let you know I really do appreciate you guys' work all this time. Um, I just had a question. <laughs> uh, uh, Dr. Tommy Carey, I just wanted to kind of do my own comparative study to what you were talking about with the subjugation of black males. Um, and what Gus was saying earlier, I think it was an hour ago, he said um, the idea that black males are the beneficiaries of a patriarchal society um, in the white supremacy uh, is, is nonsense uh, compared to, you know, all the historical context that we have. Um, and, what, what, and what made me think is when you said, I don't know if you said it in a broadcast before today, but you're saying that in a society that's based off a of domination of a subjugate class, um, it needs the existence, um, it needs the existence of subordination um, of a people that's at least somewhat similar to the dominant class. Um, and what that reminded me of was Great Britain, um, the United Kingdom, um, and the relationship between Ireland and Great Britain, where um, Ireland was subject um, to um, the whole system of Great Britain, the royalist system. And you would think like, well, if you were, you know, if you were conquered or you were a colonized country, you would think on the outside like, hey, Ireland is also a, um, Ireland is also a part of that subjugation that we're going through, whereas Ireland itself is actually the, um, the subjugate class of that society, even though it is part of that whole kingdom. Uh, so I was just wondering, is that an um, accurate uh, example of what you're talking about comparatively? Because I do know that racism and white supremacy has a whole lot of context and work to back up what Gus was saying and what you're saying. But I was wondering, I just wanted to double down and give an example from the royalist system uh, from way back when. Is that what you're kind no, of you're talking about? You're absolutely right. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, again, this is, this is one of the reasons. Uh, one of the reasons um, has been the experiences of, of Jewish boys during the Holocaust, because I find um, the exact same thing that I'm finding in the American context. Uh, so you're, you're absolutely correct. If you're looking at Irish men or how Irish were described, uh, you know, I think I mentioned this before. I know Audrey Spendling's book, you know, mentions this a lot. Um, but, you know, you, you, you see the same kind of comparisons and stereotypes that are being used on white people. So racism, uh, as we know it today, uh, does have roots in ethnology in the United States. And that has roots in the colonial context of, of you know, empires like Britain, America, you know, Spain, et cetera, expanding across the world uh, in conquest. So I think that comparatively, if you're talking about colonial contexts, you're absolutely correct. Um, but I wanted to point out one thing, though, is that when you look at it in, in the context of the Holocaust um, and you start talking about the kinds of racial subjugation and stereotypes of Jewish men uh, by Nazi Germans, uh, Nazis uh, who were German, you see the same thing that they're saying about black men in America. And, and this is so vastly important because 
it really does bring you to understand the context of, of some of the theories that are being used to explain black males. So they simultaneously believed that Jewish men were more effeminate, but were also rapists of German women. Right? And remember, this is pretty much the same population. I mean, these people were subjugated, um, were separated by, by language, uh, schooling, and religious beliefs, right, um, at, at best, right? Uh, so you had, you had Germans believe that, that Jewish males were, were dangerous, uh, that they were rapists, that they were filthy, that they, that they would destroy their women, but at the same time were lesser men than, than German men. Now, imagine what would happen if someone said, well, you know, these, these Jewish men who suffered genocide and years of extermination, violence, and oppression just wanted to be patriarchs, not right? Imagine, imagine the kind of just, just natural, the intuitive backlash to that kind of idea, right? Now, fast forward. Now, now come back to the American context and, and think about what happens when people say that enslaved black men who are being raped and murdered, lynched, and castrated wanted to be like their white oppressors. So what is so different about that context? You would never say that Jewish people who suffer, or Jewish males who suffered genocide at the hands of Nazi men and soldiers wanted to be like their oppressors, right? But when you come to the American context, you have 100 years of black men fighting against white men, fighting against patriarchy, fighting against feminism, because feminism was imperial, right, in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Fighting against this, starting black male burden societies, and they're still being said today that they wanted nothing more than to be like white men and to possess white women. And that's despite the fact that almost that over 80 some percent of black men marry black women historically. Right? Like, think about that. Black men used to be killed for looking at a white woman too long in the street. But our theories today say that they're so psychologically conditioned and depraved. They, they would risk death just to have sex with a white woman rather than embrace a black woman because they want so badly to be a white man. How is that a sound theory? And this has no proof beyond, you know, just the anecdotal accounts that people give either from stories or from reading bell hooks, et cetera. Like why, why the humanity of Jewish males as victims stops us from asserting such a deplorable circumstance? We would never say that Jewish men wanted to be patriarchs and have the power of Nazis any more than we would say that a victim of rape wants to be a rapist. But when it comes to black men, we somehow believe that because there's no status or humanity of a black male, that there's absolutely nothing wrong asserting that black men simply desire to be their oppressor. We don't do that to black women and white women because we assert that black women have humanity. And what comes with humanity is a destiny and an agenda. It comes, it comes its own vision of the world, its own vision of the future, its own notion of survival and existence. But because black men have been theoretically and historically deprived of that, the only thing we can say is they revert back to what they see, which is the, the, degra the, the degraded state of a white man. So, yeah, comparatively, I think the colonial context is true. And I think that when we start drawing comparisons between other ethnic groups and other racialized males throughout society, even in the colonial times, it gets really scary for us to see that black, how, how far down the rabbit hole we have to go to try to retrieve some kind of humanity for black men in this country. I don't appreciate that. <clears throat> Caller in Wisconsin. Uh, we had a listener actually wrote in uh, yesterday before the program. He said, uh, as you already know, 
It's extremely difficult to teach in a school system at any level as a black male. I have seen black teachers, especially black male teachers, mistreated and often pushed by suspected racists to act out in anger or to a point in which we are overwhelmed and resign. Being that the teacher demographics are about 80% white, it might be 95% where I'm at, the work environment is often terroristic and stressful, even when one attempts to be codified. After years of teaching and seeing black male teachers mistreated and forced to resign or be fired, I often wonder if I should choose another profession or when the time will come when I am the primary target. What advice would you give black male teachers that are attempting to counter racism through teaching teaching and getting oppressed by suspected racist teachers, administration and staff? How have you been able to cope with the constant attack from suspected racists as a black male teacher yourself? Wow. Um, first off, my heart goes out to the brother because I don't know if there is any way to cope. And, I'm, and I'll just be very honest, you know, as a black male. Um, you know, I started off. You know, I'm I'm from Lake Charles, Louisiana. I'm a, I'm a first generation student, uh, first first person in my family to to finish their college degree. Um, my brother finished, and then my mother went back to finish hers. Uh, and there was no model, right? Uh, I basically had a, an A average my whole life. I was a, a national debate champion. Um, no criminal record. You know, I participated in basically every advanced class I could. I just, you know, school was easy. You know, I, and the only thing I didn't know is that I should have, should have got into, went to the Ivy League schools that I got into. Uh, but, you know, first generation, I thought, I thought the more, the more the money, the more money they offered, the better. Um, that being said, you know, there, there has been no, no protection, um, despite the amount of publications, uh, despite how many awards or chairs I get or, or fellowships I get. Um, there is nothing that will protect a black male who is race conscious and invested in, in uh, dispelling the mythologies or the pathologies more accurately of black people in this society. And I say that as a 37 year old full professor, uh, I came into, I, I, I finished my PhD at 26 or 27. Um, I got a postdoctor at Penn State. Uh, I got hired at Texas A&M in 2009. I got tenure by 2012. I was full by 2016, 2017. Um, that's practically unheard of. But at the same time, that's afforded me no respect from my white colleagues. Uh, it's, re- it's afforded me no respect um, from larger institutions. Uh, largely because I criticize white feminism as being imperialistic and racist, and I criticize white liberalism for being anti-black. When you make those kinds of decisions to try to change the way we think about black people and the way that we educate black people about their own intellectual history and realities, uh, there is no place where white people and, and white institutions, and that includes some black people, uh, won't attack you. So you have to become extremely dedicated um, to the idea of what you are trying to achieve. Um, You have to become dedicated to changing the lives of these young black boys and girls, or you have to decide 
that that's not what you can do in that environment and try to do something else. Uh, there's a reason that there's a shortage of, of black male teachers. And it's not because we're not capable. Uh, it's because the kind of racism and the kind of dehumanization we experience when we try to do anything positive in this society is so overwhelming um, that it almost paralyzes our will. Uh, so that being the case, you have to make a decision about who's going to matter. Uh, sometimes people attack me because in my classes, I say that I don't teach uh, white theorists about black people. Uh, so if we're going to do a class on you know, white theorists or philosophy. Generally, sure, we'll include people. But when I, when I talk about black philosophy, I don't include white, white thinkers. And the reason I don't is because there's a certain kind of authority and I think comfort that, that students deserve to have in listening to, to black voices speak about themselves. And as a black teacher, that's the same thing with you. You have to become comfortable hearing your own voice and hearing your own thoughts about the world when you teach these children. And if you can't do that because of a racist administration or a racist colleagues, then I say find somewhere where you can do that. Um, because our lives are far too short uh, to simply deal with the kinds of insult and, and debasement that white society gives us, especially when we can't give, get the results that we want for our own people. Uh, but on the other hand, I would say that I'm whole, whole, wholeheartedly supportive um, because there's such a need for black men doing well for other black men and black women to see, black, black boys and girls to see, um, that, you know, that you, it's, it's almost as if you're a martyr, right? You're, <laughs> you're one of the few that, that, that's the example against the stereotype. It is so important uh, to have black male voices in the classroom. So it's, I mean, it's a test 22. The only, only you can make the decision about which one is worth more. Um, but make no mistake, racism and, and, and the misandry against black men will find you anywhere you go in this country. Uh, we just have to become better at speaking about our experiences and finding each other so that we can actually give legitimacy and support to each other when we try to do um, so much more than what most expect from us. Great response. Uh, the the caller six three six one. Did you have a question for Dr. Curry? Six three six one. Yes. Can I be heard? Greetings, Mr. Steele. Yes. Awesome. Awesome. Um, uh, yeah, I wanted to uh, ask uh, Dr. Curry about um, what is his uh, interpretation of, I guess, uh, black academics uh, in. Um, mainstream uh, on mainstream television um, or on mass media uh, platforms that are dominated by uh, white supremacists. I, I ask this question um, in the light of uh, the firing of a, a black professor um, from her, uh, I guess, a New Jersey uh, community college uh, um, uh, position after her appearance on uh, Fox News uh, program um, headed by uh, Tucker Carlson and also the showcasing of, um, uh, I believe, uh, uh, Dr. Michael Eric Dyson on the um, 
HBO program, Real Time with Bill Maher. Um, I just wanted to get your interpretation um, of that. Well, look, I think it's, I mean, when you look at most of the people or the black, the black intellectuals that, um, that get on these white stations, they don't really give a radical message. Uh, and more often than not, there is an ideology, um, be it feminist or being extremely critical of the black community, that gives them that pulpit. Um, when you look at what they've actually contributed in terms of research, often that is, is often quite thin, uh, theoretically, um, and it's, it's usually more in line with kind of journalistic reporting of the black condition. Um, that's not to say that it's illegitimate, but it, it often differs in tone and content um, from, you know, more, more academically rigorous work. And it certainly differs in the tone of it. Um, most radical black thinkers, uh, be they, uh, you know, radical on the basis of, of, of black Marxism or uh, a kind of black socialism or a kind of black nationalism or critical race theory, uh, these kinds of ideas uh, aren't picked up or rewarded by the, the white liberal mainstream uh, news outlets. Uh, so more often than not, the people who are public intellectuals that appear on these radio stations and shows uh, are are people who ascribe to very specific liberal politics. So it's, it's why you don't see, you see Michael Eric Dyson having this argument with Bill Meyer and not say Adolf Reed, for instance. Um, the reason that is, is because we don't really have that kind of critical voice uh, that is not going to endorse some form of establishment politics. Uh, Michael Eric Dyson was overwhelmingly supporter for someone like uh, Hillary Clinton. And there are very, very real uh, consequences to even a Clinton presidency. I'm, I, I've always said that it's, it's sort of preferable uh, in kind uh, to a Trump presidency, but we can't underestimate the effects that, that Clinton would, ha- would have had on, on black men and, and brown men as well. So when we, when we talk about this, we're talking about a political program that most black public intellectuals endorsed. Um, that program is going to be extremely liberal, uh, it's going to be critical of racism, but only insofar as it changes white people's minds. It's not going to try to uproot institutions because these black intellectuals benefit from MSNBC. They benefit from you know the same institutions that most black people are excluded from. Um, and largely, it's going to be uh, sympathetic or extremely feminist. So when you look at that, that's just going to be how people mobilize through the academy. And there's certainly there's certainly a function that these intellectuals um, play. But I think the problem is, is when they become the dominant voices of, of black intellectual thinking or black popular thinking, um, it leads to a kind of stagnation of critical thought. And I think that that's where we're at now. Uh, They didn't anticipate Trump winning. So you see that black intellectuals don't have much to say. They certainly don't have as much to say now as when they did when President Obama was elected. And I think you can see the response, right? People, people who write the stuff I write, you know, we're being attacked by the alt-right. We're the ones being, you know, the alt-right and pissing off white supremacists and conservatives because the work that we're doing has been functionally geared to identifying structural racism. It's easy to criticize Barack Obama for his patriarchal or masculine tendencies when everybody's sympathetic to criticizing the first black president and everybody's progressive, everybody's liberal, and everybody pays attention to what feminists are saying on Cosmo or whatever 
uh, you know, publica- online publication of the day. It's quite different to speak out against racism and white supremacy and white feminism when people are coming after your jobs, when people are threatening your lives, right? That's the difference between the public intellectuals that endorse the liberal establishment and black people who have traditionally written and done research within these radical black traditions. Appreciate that question. Uh, the caller 1553, did you have a question for Dr. Curry, 1553? Hey, how you doing? Um, uh, Dr. Curry, how you doing? Hey, how you doing? Good, I'm doing good. Um, okay, um, the, okay we, like, we're more or less focusing on like the established media and how they're, they're pushing the... Um, narrative of uh, this false uh, male patriarchy. Um, how damaging is social media uh, to this narrative? Because um, when you when you go on social media sites, there's an overwhelming um, discussion and debate, um, which I think is also non-constructive, of uh, a kind of uh, battle of the sex, of, of the battle of the sexes, uh, mainly uh, black women blaming black men and uh, black men blaming black women. So um, how, how, is, how is social media uh, affecting this argument? Well, I, I try to, I'm on Facebook and Twitter, but I'm really disappointed with what social media thinks it accomplishes. Um, there's very little intellectual exchange, and I found that most accounts of black men and black women on social media are vastly misinformed and, and outright dangerous. Uh, on Twitter, for instance, it's just kind of given that black Twitter is anti-black male. Uh, I remember having several discussions on Twitter as best you could uh, when that statistic about black men being the second, then Amber Phillips said they were the first largest killer of black women ages 15 to 24. And I simply provided the data sets to show that was false. And I, I, po- I, you know, I posted pictures to Charlemagne um, of of the, of the of the quote where it came from and how it was retracted, uh, and there was no uptake on that because you know there is no there is no fighting stereotypes with facts, and I think that what we see today between black men and black women is really a reflection of the internalized racism that's been documented uh, in our group since the since studies in the 1970s. Uh, what we've always seen is that. Not, not most or all, but some uh, black people, black men and women have uh, negative stereotypes about each other. And in the cases where they do have negative stereotypes about each other, uh, historically, and I, when I say historically, there have been three or four major studies uh, from the 1970s, the 1990s, and even in 2000. Uh, the, in, these, in these disagreements and negative stereotypes when we hold of each other, um, negative stereotypes about black men are more prevalent. So... What we've done in the battle of sexes is highlight the kind of misogyny that we believe exists in black culture without paying any attention whatsoever to the kinds of misandry um, that has been documented uh, to accompany it. And what that's had the effect of doing is allowing the battle of the sexes, if if we decide to call it that, between black people, um, be specifically endorsed by white liberals in such a way that it furthers the reach and, and the attraction of feminist politics uh, amongst black people. And what that has meant for black people, given that black men are such a small minority of professors uh, in the academy and such a small minority of the people that are targeted by these blogs and social media accounts of, of black masculinity, 
Um, they pretty much run, run rampant without any challenge. So I think social media, uh, as much as it tries to say that it's trying to reach out to the masses of the country and society, um, really is trying to target uh, students and people who are in some way associated with institutions of higher learning. Uh, and the effect of that is that we've socialized and given acceptance to, and in many ways reward uh, both scholars and readers who take a very narrow view of black culture, uh, black love, and black sexuality. Uh, people who believe that somehow black people fundamentally don't love each other, that black men and women hate each other, uh, that black people are somehow more homophobic uh, than their white counterparts, uh, that black men uh, kill black women and, and black homosexuals uh, without remorse simply because they're hypermasculine. Um, none of these ideas are causal. They happen in our culture the same way that black women kill black men in our culture at astronomical rates, uh, the same way that black women rape young black boys and girls, the same way that black women abuse children. All of these things do happen in our culture. Uh, but to say that this is how our culture is, that this is what our culture maintains itself to be, is just wrong. Um, stated differently, the, the same way that we could point out that black men abuse black women in the same way we could have pointed out that black women abuse black men and, and, and astronomically, I won't say astronomically, but disproportionately abuse uh, black children. We don't develop theories saying that black women are abusers or violent because the humanity of them pushes back. So the battle of sexes, when you have the humanity of black women, that's challenged by white supremacy, but largely acknowledged within the black community. Uh, and the negative stereotypes of deviancy, criminality, rape, et cetera, that's placed on black men. Uh, where there's largely not a, a recognition of black men um, in positive roles, then I think you're going to get what you see today on social media, which is just the outright assault on black men's humanity and status within our communities and society um, that has no major challenge. Last caller, Dr. Curry. Uh, the person at 4243, 4243, did you have a question for Dr. Curry? Yes, um, thank you for taking my call. Um, hello, Dr. Curry. I definitely appreciate your book. Um, one of the passages well, that stuck out to me, yeah, you're welcome. One of the passages, I'm still in the beginning, was on page 12, just talking about Elizabeth C. Stanton, because um, I remember reading about her in school, but not also, of course, understanding her racism. The thing that, the question that I had was, it seemed like this, the, the book has actually helped me to, um, look at the, the trials and tribulations that black men go through. Have any of you that you know of, have any black um, feminists received the book, um, I guess, well, or reviewed or anything? Um, basically like that. Uh, that's all I had. Thank you. No, thank, thank you. Um, well, I, I don't know if any black feminists have reviewed the book as of yet um, or received it well. <laughs> I'm guessing that they won't. Um, you know, and, and I say that from experience. Uh, you know, I, I tell a story in the epilogue of the book that's pretty short, uh, where I was presenting uh, chapter four at a conference. And, you know, it was pretty much done the same way that it appears in the book uh, outside of, I think I added the section on James Baldwin. And a black feminist booed me. And, you know, and this is a, a national conference, you know, black conference, black philosophy conference. And, you know, and I was shocked by it, I, you know, and her argument's like, well, you're erasing black women. And I'm like, I don't mention anything about black women in this piece. I have no real stake 
in um, negating the experiences of black women. So why do you feel the need to negate the experiences of black men? Uh, you know, and we proceeded to get into this argument about, you know, I should read more, um, who said I should read? Uh, Elaine Brown, right? And the irony of this was that Elaine Brown hates black feminists because um, she, she, she uses some pretty harsh language to them and calls them anti-revolutionary. Uh, uh, the point of that being, though, is that given the kind of gender politics in the academy, uh, I don't think that uh, black feminism has historically been willing to share uh, the suffering of sexual violence uh, with males. Uh, I think that if you're talking about queer theory or homosexuality, uh, our choirness, that there's been some concession there. But even even within queer theory, there is not the kind of arguments that I even think you get with, with Woodard about the homoeroticism associated with the oppression of blackness. So I think there is something in feminism, and specifically in the anthropology of black feminism, that has created a blind spot to the acknowledgement of empirical facts in history concerning the sexualized, sexualized violence and oppression of black men and then the actual condition politically and economically of black males. Um, it's antithetical to their account of patriarchy that black men could be worse off than black women under intersectional thinking. Uh, and given that I think intersectionality fails on so many levels to give us a, a, a demonstrable account of, of black male reality uh, and that we need a new system, I don't, I don't know what that, what that, I don't know where we would agree, right? Um, so, I mean, I guess we'll see. I mean, I'm certainly happy to engage black feminists on this question, uh, but I simply don't start with the position that black men are pathological, uh, that black men are fundamentally sexist or misogynistic, or uh, that black men are violent. And I think that by not starting there, it's going to create a, quite an impasse to having a conversation on the terms that uh, many black feminists would want. Uh, the, in, in my research, the studies that we've done in terms of early sexual experiences of black boys, um, the misandric uh, microaggressions of black men in college, uh, early socialization factors of black men. Um, it just does not show that black men are sexist in the way that many black feminists contend. Uh, so we'll, we'll see what happens. We will eagerly anticipate the results. Uh, the, the book that we have been discussing, The Man Not Race Class Genre, and the Dilemmas of Black Manhood. Absolutely phenomenal read. Thoroughly enjoyed it. As I said, it uh, really uh, helped me uh, rethink my stoppage with the uh, enforcement officials last week out uh, brushing your teeth while black. Uh, just really great read. I would recommend uh, folks pick up a copy, share it, give it out to other folks. Great summer counter-racist reading. Uh, thank you so much for uh, coming back to the program to discuss your, your hot new text. Uh, and thanks to the uh, thanks for the shout-out to the context of white supremacy. I read the uh, acknowledgments yesterday and said, oh, we got, got a mention for the cows and everything. So uh, much, much no, obliged. I no, I appreciate, I appreciate over the last few years, I've, I've certainly appreciated the... Uh, opportunity to speak to the audience and, and i appreciate you know what you're what you're doing here having a real conversation about racism and white supremacy so it's, it's certainly well deserved sir 
Much obliged. We will uh, definitely look forward. There's so much. I had so many uh, highlights and what have you. I only really got a snippet of, of the thing, so we'll have to have you back to continue the dialogue, pick out some of the other sections uh, of the book. But phenomenal job, and we will uh, look forward to uh, more of your outstanding scholarship, uh, University of Texas A&M's Dr. Tommy Curry. Uh, enjoy the rest of your evening and keep up the outstanding work, sir. Thank you, sir. For sure. Take care. Context of white supremacy, Dr. Curry's ninth visit on the cows, ninth time that we've been fortunate to have him on the broadcast. And seriously, I did have a lot of notes. Uh, this is easily a book that, you know, we can uh, go through many, many times. Uh, it's not super long. Uh, if we have folks out there that are in reading less than 250 pages. Uh, so you can you can do what I did. You can take your time and really think about what you're reading. I think I started reading this book uh, last Wednesday, so I took roughly a week six seven days or so so you can just read a little bit each day maybe 30 pages or so each day and process think about what has been written very informative book so glad that i read it uh the man not dr tommy curry uh we will be here thursday for workplace racism uh friday for gil scott heron's the last holiday the book study and saturday for the compensatory call-in uh Hopefully, uh, constructive use of folks Tuesday evening. Uh, if you're out frolicking for your summertime, great. Uh, still want to make some time to read. You can do that while you're out at the beach or whatever you're lounging if you're outside. Uh, but also, let's make sure that sobriety definitely would be encouraged under system of racism, white supremacy. White people do not pause in terrorizing, abusing black people just because the weather is nice. Uh, I would very much encourage being alert, being vigilant, uh, and having total use of all your cognitive abilities to keep yourself safe. Uh, being sober goes a long way with that. That way you can, you know, be alert to potential dangers uh, in your environment, race soldiers, whites, who may be looking to cause you problems or even end your life. I uh, also wanted to make sure that I remember Dr. Curry, he mentioned uh, Danielle McGuire, uh, she did the book at the dark end of the street uh, about the hist how the rape of black females helped propel the civil rights movement. A lot of great information in there, but she is a white woman. She was a guest on the program in the summer of 2011, September specifically. It's in the archives at iTunes right now. Uh, but even with the constructive work in that book, I said this is a suspected race soldier. I pointed out examples in the book uh, and then hearing from Dr. Curry that she was on the bandwagon. Yeah, that no good, dirty Nate Parker raping people. And now he's going to come out, try and make a film and say we need to come and support his project. That is the sort of thing that I would expect. Uh, racist. It's not a surprise to me. Uh, a racist being able to write a great book about racism, white supremacy. They are the experts. I expect the experts on racism to practice racism, white supremacy, even if they give you a few bits of truth here and there, they are still advocating, supporting, practicing white supremacy. That is their job, their primary motivating force for being alive on this planet. So keep that in mind, even with Danielle McGuire at the dark end of the street in the archives again, September 2011. Thanks for everyone who dialed in. Uh, glad everyone got questions. Uh, we might have missed a person or two, but I think they just called in like right as Dr. Curry was about to leave. So you should have dialed in a little earlier uh, if you had a question. Uh, with that, uh, we will conclude Invest in the Cows. We are listener-supported counter-racist radio 
racism-notes.blogspot.com is the address for the blog. That address again, racism-notes.blogspot.com. PayPal is in the top right corner. If you are not into PayPal, drop us an email until justice at gmail.com. You can also support our wish list is at Amazon under Gus T. Renegade. I got Dr. Curry's book from my Amazon wish list. Uh, and in short order, I think I put it up there. Uh, and within a matter of days, uh, it arrived on the porch. So much obliged uh, to the folks who have supported Invest Us and, and invested, kept us rolling uh, for eight plus years. Uh, with that, we will wrap things up. I hope everyone uh, has a great evening, get lots of rest, uh, and make sure you're managing your black mental health. That's something that uh, I've been failing at, but I'm making time to work on that as well. Black mental health, very important. That's it. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. <laughs> I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>